Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. Hey, this is Lisa, and I have a returning guest today. It's David Gillespie. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me back, Lisa. For sure. Uh, You may have heard David on our Jurassic Park episode, which was super fun. If you get a chance, go back and listen to that one. It's awesome. Yeah, we had uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, it was so, so awesome. Um, And I know we were kind of going back and forth about what you wanted your next movie to talk about um, to be. And I have to be honest, when you suggested this, I was pretty excited. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, can I spoil it? Can I say what we're talking about today? Yes, yes. Go for it. Awesome. So today we're going to talk about Blade Runner 2049, the movie that just came out and totally blew me away. I'm so excited to talk to you about it. So am I. And and I'm, I really like, uh, you know, usually or on our last episode, you had a lot of detail. So I was like, you're going to be a good person to talk to about this. Like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. That's yeah. so nice of you to say. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And uh, I, I agree with you. When I saw this movie, I mean, I was so hyped beyond belief before it even came out. Did you watch all the uh, the three little movies that led up to it? Uh, yeah, yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was I w- like desperate for any news about the movie. Like it was just, it was always on my mind. Yeah, you know. Um, okay, I will say when they told, when I found out that they were going to do that, I was excited to. P- I'm pumped because I love cyberpunk and and that whole genre or subgenre of sci-fi but i did have a kind of a tinkle of 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 hesitancy because you know the animatrix did the same thing Mm -hmm. and the animatrix were so good and then matrix two and three uh, not quite you know And, and so when they did this, I was like, oh, yes, more content. I can't wait to watch it. I loved them. I really, you know, I don't know if we get a chance to talk about them today, but I did enjoy them. And I was worried that that meant that this wasn't going to, you know, kind of fulfill my hype, my own personal hype. But I, but it did great. Like, I really enjoyed um, 2049. And I, I'm glad to hear that you did, too, because I had a lot of fun watching it. Yeah. And, you know, when I first heard news about a sequel to Blade Runner, at first, I wasn't excited. You know, I thought, oh, I don't know. Do we need this? What more is there to say? But then the right. second I saw Denny was on board to direct it, I went, never mind. I retract everything I just said. I am on board right. 100%. Like, he is that kind of director to me that I was sold the minute he was attached to the project. I mean, my only fear was that they would take him off or something. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Yeah, you know, actually, I am really glad that Ridley Scott didn't direct it. Um, I, I thought that, you know, Ridley Scott is a, is a brilliant filmmaker, but no question, but there's something about when a filmmaker goes back to their old property and revisits it, 
and you can kind of feel like they are not really divorcing themselves of the old one enough to make something new and, and, and whole. And, and Denny here, I mean, to bring him in was just a really smart play on all their parts to say, you know, this guy is clearly a fan of the old work of the previous movie and would do this justice. And I, I'm so happy they made that decision. Yeah, me too. I remember I was watching some behind the scenes where he even said like he didn't want anyone else to direct it because he didn't want them to fuck it up. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, yep, you know, I was, yeah. and, and so I've, I've kind of ate up every single piece of news. I was so excited when it came out. I saw it twice in the same weekend. Yeah. And I mean, it's like an almost three hour movie. So that's quite a commitment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good, good on you for giving it two goes right away, back to back. Yeah, and, I, I think I saw it uh, Friday night and then Sunday afternoon, something like that. <laughs> just, nice. But yeah. Yeah, I saw it, I want to say I saw it Saturday, the weekend it came out. Um, I haven't actually gotten a chance to see it again. Um, just the, the three-hour commitment is a lot to ask of me right now. It's a um, lot, yeah. But I really want to see it again kind of as soon as I can. So, uh, you know, please, audience, don't uh, don't hate me for only seeing it once because <laughs> I definitely want to see it more. It's just a just a, a matter of logistics. I mean, I think it'll be interesting to sort of bounce both of our perceptions of the movie off each other because you saw it once and I saw it twice. We probably see the film even a little bit differently because I do think it's one of those movies that absolutely rewards revisiting just like the original did. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, when I was watching it the first time, I was like, oh man, I have to see this a few more times because now that I know everything that's going on and the motivations behind these people, I need to go back and re-watch their opening sequences when they're introduced because little things in the beginning change context when you have the whole movie as a as a as a reference point, you know? Oh, for sure. And I don't know if you saw uh, on my social media, I was complaining that one of the reasons I had to see this again was because I had some moviegoers next to me that talked the entire oh, movie. God, I hate that. And it I, was yeah, so I read that. Bad. <laughs> I felt so bad for you. I was lucky in that my audience was stone quiet. And it's so awesome. And then at the end, people clapped. I mean, I, like, I had a really great experience uh, the first time through. So it, it's just awful that people talk during yours. I know. Uh, and it was bad. And we could hear, like, my husband could hear him. Nick could hear him. And they were saying stuff like, what's going on? What's happening? And then also, like, having a visceral reaction to anything gross or shocking. They would go, ew, yuck. Oh, I mean, God. it was really bad. And multiple people complained about them. They weren't exited from the theater and i mean i'm even saying it we'll talk about it at like when we talk about the movie but even at the end that ending scene um i guess it's not the absolute end but i guess k's ending scene they were it, it's like all quiet and there's snow they were still talking i'm like what is there left to are, talk about like what? are you kidding me oh yes. my god okay <laughs> so bad. so so any I, I know the people who are listening to to this podcast are movie fans yeah right and I got to say, folks, if you're in the theater and people are doing that, <laughs> you've got to get up and tell someone. The The theater doesn't want them in the in the room. They don't, yeah. right? Because then they become the movie theater where people talk all the time and then nobody goes to that theater anymore. So you got to tell them. Manager's going to come in and pull those people out. I've seen them do it. Yeah, they and, do do that sometimes. They didn't this time, which I think oh. they were given a warning. And people were even throwing things at them. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there is 
just like no way they it and I sort of it seemed like a situation where it was like a double date and the two guys wanted to see the movie and the women did not. Uh, and I also noticed the girls kept getting up, leaving, coming back over and over. I think they were like protesting this movie. They were not interested. Yeah. I was tired. It was one AM. I was like, yeah. I'm just gonna go to bed. But yeah. it definitely influenced my decision to see it again because there were some moments I just straight up missed because I was looking at them like, are you kidding me? Well, that was that was fun to discuss. Uh, let's go ahead and talk. I'll, I'll do the synopsis really quick. Yeah, and then yeah. we'll jump into like quick facts and so on. Cool. All right, guys, the synopsis for Blade Runner 2049. Officer K, played by Ryan Gosling, a new Blade Runner for the Los Angeles Police Department, unearths a long-buried secret that has potential to plunge what's left of society into chaos. His discovery leads him on a quest to find Rick Deckard, Harrison Ford, a former Blade Runner who's been missing for 30 years. And we'll get into more of the plot after that, but that's the setup. Yeah. That's um, a good summary. I like that. I did too. It's simple. I think I pulled that off uh, either IMDb or Wikipedia. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, that sounds like an IMDb. They're they're usually pretty good about the one one paragraph, two or three sentence deals. Mm-hmm, that don't give like too much away. Yeah, yeah. Um, Especially so, since it's still out, right? It's still in theaters now, so you can't <laughs> you can't give away too much. Yeah, if you've never heard this show before, we talk tons of spoilers. I don't do warning. I don't do pre-spoiler. It's all spoilers. So if you have not seen this movie yet and you want to, wait to listen to this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just hit the skip on this one and, and come back to it. Right. Uh, let's jump into some quick facts. I've got just a couple. And then as I discuss them, if you want to expound on them or want to interject with one, go for it. Yeah. Um, the opening scene with Kay, where he confronts Sapper Morton, played by Dave Batista, is a mm-hmm. near exact remake of a scene written and storyboarded but never filmed for the original Blade Runner. That is cool. I believe it. That is so. Where he's uh, pushing him through the wall and they're fighting it out tooth yep. and nail. Yeah. Um, I completely buy that. Uh, that's such a like a comic book. Um, you know, like okay cyberpunk and anime and comic books they all go together right mm-hmm. i mean in film noir it's just it's just a beautiful blend of all those things Definitely. and that opening that opening scene is straight out of all of those medias kind of kind of put together I, so that scene one of the things that preoccupied me so much in that scene was that boiling pot of water yes i know that was such i mean I, this is where and you know we'll have a whole section where we talk about Denis, but this is something that he understands so well, and it's in so many of his great movies, is how to build tension in such a subtle, artistic, but really effective way. Yeah, yeah, I, I loved that. And, I mean, that opening sequence was was awesome and really set the stage. I kind of got the impression right from there that I was looking at one of two movies. I was either looking at a... Uh, insane action movie a la The Matrix where everybody has superpowers or K is a replicant. Mm-hmm. And then there's that reveal at the end of that scene that he is. Right. Yeah. And I was like, oh, thank you guys for immediately <laughs> validating <laughs> that, okay, we're not in an insane action movie. This guy really can go through a wall and survive and, and beat somebody who's much stronger than they are Yeah. Uh, or appearing much stronger. So that was good. I, I really liked that opening sequence. Um, and it kind of set the pace for everything because it, it creeps in. 
right? Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. K, you know, he's slowly landing, and Bautista is kind of like messing with his grub farm or whatever, <laughs> yeah. whatever gross thing he's growing. He just kind of, you know, slowly enters his home, and then it just erupts into this violent um, escapade. Yeah, and then it's, and then it's over as soon as, as suddenly as it began, it's done, and yeah. that's very punk. It's very cyberpunk. Uh, and and really kind of carries through the rest of the movie this slow build up, everything's fine, and then before you know it, everything's sideways, and then it's over. Yeah, and, and it's just interesting because I mean Dave Batista is like a farmer, and then I think Kay also he's sort of like nodding off in his car. Also, I think mm-hmm. that's that scene, or it's right after. But I mean, you feel like they're both human, and then he's hunting him, so now you know he's a replicant. But then at the the twist towards the end is he's a replicant too. It just yeah. really messes with the dynamics from the first one because I feel like in the first one, pretty much every time you saw a replicant, they didn't really seem that human. You know, I mean, when you think about uh, Rudger's character or Pris, um, right. Rachel was the only one that seemed extremely human to me and possibly Deckard. Uh, right. But in this one, I mean it's seamless like it's much more it's much harder to tell who's a replicant yeah yeah the, the, the me- exactly yeah the the membrane of separation between the two peoples is razor thin now and i like it, it too because there's that fear or that question about deckard possibly being a replicant in the first one and one of the things that one of my arguments was well he'd be like the perfect person to hunt them down and then they literally do that in this one you know? <laughs> yeah 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 exactly exactly and i i do love you're right they they both seem downtrodden they both seem crushed by the world that they're in you know k and batista uh, just just ruined by their world, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is just another job, you know, and Kay is just going in there killing replicants. Cause that's what he's got to do. And, or, you know, retiring them by whatever means necessary. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I, I really do like that. It really did kind of set Kay up as a, um, as a, almost as an everyman, like almost as an everyman sure. detective. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the references they use throughout the movie calling him a dog, good doggy, you know, that's a term also for detectives. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he is sort of just following orders and, you know, what's supposed to separate him, you know, people from replicants? Well, the replicants follow orders. Well, it seems like everybody does in this world. And, yeah. you know, and, and that's just like another thing that's sort of keeping him down. Um, another... Yeah. Oh, oh, go go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, uh, the the only thing I wanted to add to that is there's surprisingly few people in this movie. Wow, that's a really good observation. I hadn't thought about that. You're absolutely right. There's very few people that are very few characters, at least. Like you see people, but sure, you're right. The the main characters are almost all replicants, huh? Yeah. Uh, to kind of I guess set the stage. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Denis himself. Um, ooh, I'm ooh, actually, so... Oh, go ahead. Can, can I cut you off? Oh, I do yeah. have one one more quick fact oh, to no, talk go about. go for it. Please, please. So I looked this up. Um, you know, Kay does his baseline recite where he says, uh, uh, and blood, black nothingness begins to spin. And he has this whole like, something about interlinked within cells, interlinked yes. within cells yes. and all that baseline stuff. So that's actually a poem. 
um, mm. from uh, a guy named Vladimir uh, Nabokov or Nabokov. Um, the poem is called Pale Fire, and it's about um, and it's actually the book that Joy asks Kay to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and that whole poem and passage is about recognizing natural mimics or shams or fakes, you know, like, like, uh, stick bugs looking like actually they're, you know, it looks like a stick, but it's really a bug or, or, uh, mimic moths and butterflies, all that kind of stuff. That's really what it's about. And that's what Kay is. He goes around detecting shams, you know, these, these hidden replicants and that sort of thing. And, And his poem that he recites is all about, uh, what his job in the world is, what he was created to do. Yes, yeah, yeah. I had heard that. I hadn't heard what the poem was actually about, though. I knew the fact that it was a poem. I knew that it was from that book, but I, I didn't know what it was about. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I love yeah. that. I love that. Did you have any other facts? I'm so sorry. Sometimes I move like too quickly when I do this. <laughs> no, 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 no. That, that was my only like really cool fact. Everything that, that else is, is really like cool. <laughs> everything else is like about the the actors and the way they got assigned. You know, like originally it was going to be Ridley Scott, and then he got busy, so uh, Danny had to be brought in. That kind of stuff. But yeah, uh, uh, but yeah, th- that was my one good one. Well, and I mean, also, I think Ridley had to really make a choice, right? I mean, it's like he decided to reboot the Alien franchise or this, I felt like, you know? And so he went with the Alien franchise. He can't do both. It's just right. too many things. Um, right. It w- yeah, and I mean, if I was Ridley, I would absolutely do that, too. I mean, the Alien franchise is giant. There's so much room to move in there. I mean, that's the right call for him. But I'm really glad that he brought Denny in to... to revitalize Blade Runner and, and do something really cool with it. Yeah, as much as I, I mean, I strongly respect Ridley Scott. I think Alien is a brilliant film, and I think Blade Runner is a brilliant film. I completely agree with you. I, I really am glad that he brought Denis in. I think he was the perfect person for this job. Um, one complaint that a lot of people have about the original is that it's cold. You don't really get to know the characters uh, I feel yeah. like Ridley Scott is all about selling you on ideas and concepts, and I'm cool with that. I, I don't need to connect deeply with characters, honestly. I think mm-hmm. some of the best movies don't do that. Like, I think Inception is a great example of a wonderful movie. I never really connected deeply with the characters. They spend so much time telling you what's happening, <laughs> you don't really <laughs> get to. And that's not a criticism. I'm, I like movies like that, but there's a lot of moviegoers that do not like that. Um, right. I think Denis in this movie was able to do both, which was really impressive to me. He humanizes uh, Deckard in less time than the entire length of the first movie. I mean, it's amazing <laughs> the motivation and humanity he's able to imbue in these characters that are yeah. pretty much all... You know, as they said on the Honest trailer, sad robots. <laughs> so, yeah. Incredible. It, well, and the other thing is that Denny is very open to actor input. Mm, I didn't know that. That's interesting. And, and and he is very open to the idea of, hey, you bring in – I know we're, we're practically segueing into talking about Denny at this point, I think. Yeah, and by the way, I'm always afraid to say his last name. Uh, on other podcasts, we've called him Denny V. <laughs> on another <laughs> one that I did, uh, Geek Media Core, that's what they, they call him, Denny V. Um, I think it's Denis Villeneuve. 
So uh, he's French. He's right. French, right? He's, yeah, I think he's French Canadian. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Villeneuve sounds right. I mean, yeah. they they drop the V all the time, right? Right. Uh, yeah. If if it's not correct, I'm so sorry, and please don't let that determine how you think how I think of him as a director. It just <laughs> consider that my poor pronunciation. <laughs> but yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> no, you're you're right. Yeah. So he he loves it when actors come to him and say, "Hey, I stood up all night." And this is a quote from him. I saw him in an interview talking about this stuff. He's like, I love it when an actor comes to me and says, I stayed up all night thinking about this thing. I have to try it. And he's like, awesome. Yeah, let's do it. So like, um, I, I think that that's part of his style that allows those characters to become more human more quickly mm-hmm. because the actors are thrilled to emote and express those aspects of the characters as they see them. Yeah, it's right? like they understand what the end game is, what the real motivation is. They're not just being told or, you know, it's shot so, I guess, I mean, I'm sure it's shot out of sequence, but there are some movies where the actors, the whole movie, are like, what movie are we making? What's going on? <laughs> like, that's how, yeah. uh, what's that movie? Uh, Mad Max Fury Road was for the actors. They they had no idea. And it wasn't, it like wasn't until they sat down and watched it that they were like, okay, this is good. Yeah. But I guess Denis is different in that he – that's a really interesting fact. I hadn't read that, but I did read that he feels that props should be real and mm-hmm. heavy and complex. I watched a whole short about all the props. It was with uh, Adam Savage where he got, oh, like, nice. invited on the set and got to, like, pick them all up. And, you know, like the blasters, for instance, they're really heavy. They look like real guns. They use yeah. real knives. Um and just oh, wow. every little piece of tech, go watch that video. Very impressive. I mean, it's real stuff. And um, there's also a, a Vice video, um, which is also really good about about the behind the scenes and how Denis made sure that he, he doesn't like green screen at all. Right. He uses right. it as little as humanly possible. He feels that, kind of like what you were saying, in order for the actors to give a really good performance, they have to feel like they're there. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that makes him the right pick, right? Because Ridley Scott used a bunch of models and and uh, and screens and all that kind of stuff to try and make it as 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 real as they could. Certainly, they didn't have computer effects at the time, and mm-hmm. Denny follows in that footstep of, of of ethos where he's like, "I want the city to be a model. I don't want it to be a computer generated city. I want it to be a model of a city where we fly a little camera through it." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean that's. A lot of film crews won't do that now. They don't make models of cities anymore. They just, you know, digitize the whole thing and run with it. Um, and there's good reasons to do that. Very good reasons to do that. But I like that. I, I agree. Like, I think that Denny is the right role for this. And part of that is his insistence on practical effects and uh, things that the actors can hold on to and feel like they're in that space. Uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, it probably doesn't surprise you to know. I read that one of his favorite films ever. I think his favorite film is two thousand one, A Space Odyssey. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. that's that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, I can definitely see that. Uh, yeah, uh, a slow I, I just, burn like this movie is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I saw an interview where he said, you know, I was scared to take on this movie because I knew that if another director took on this movie, I would show up to the theater with a baseball bat. <laughs> with my expectations and he's like so i know that everybody's going to come and watch my movie bringing baseball bats because that's what i would have done <laughs> if i was an audience member right. uh, so 
he definitely went into this with the right mindset of, okay, I've got to do this just right. <laughs> Otherwise, um, myself would be feel would uh, would uh, would hate this movie. You know, like he is his own fanboy of this movie and, and had his own expectations. Yeah. And the, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, of the Blade Runner of the Blade Runner world. That's all I wanted to say. Oh yeah. So, so sorry. <laughs> um. So yeah, and I think you know his favorite film being two thousand one Space Odyssey sort of speaks to his obsession with detail in this movie. I mean, Kubrick mm-hmm. was sort of known for that, right? Um, mm-hmm. Caring mm-hmm. so much about the tiny little details in the background, and I think Ridley Scott was also a director, or is also a director that cares a lot about that. You can see the two thousand one Space Odyssey influence in Alien. Uh, certainly, mm-hmm. and uh, and in Blade Runner, he just cares so much about how intricate the set is. You just really see kind of a through line with those directors and and that yeah. obsession with detail. You know, I think another director that um, probably matters in this kind of continuum because you had uh, Kubrick, two thousand one. You know, Blade Runner with Ridley Scott. I think in between here, you have uh, maybe a little bit of like. Uh, hard-boiled and uh, John Woo and that kind of stuff because the detective changes, mm-hmm. right? The yeah, detective of Blade Runner was a grizzled fil- film noir classic detective. You know, he's he's no nonsense. He's going to get to the bottom of this, and he's got he's got his gun, and that's it. Whereas now K is a martial arts master. He's a weapons specialist. He's pseudo philosophical. Um, you know, and that's a lot of that kind of comes from the action movies that borrowed from these movies saying, Hey, this is really good. Let me add some extra stuff onto my detectives. And I think that this movie is kind of informed by some of that stuff that was going on in the, you know, in the nineties and, and early aughts in terms of action and, and detective stories and that kind of stuff. I, I don't know if I would call it like an inspiration, but I do think that those movies set a new expectation for how cool your detective needs to be. Mm. And K and K is definitely that like, he is definitely a very cool detective by today's standards. Right. Oh, I really like that. I actually am not as familiar with some of that work. So that's an area I'm a little weak in. I'm going to have to get some, uh, you know, some suggestions from you on that. (laughs) Yeah, no worries. No worries. Yeah, they're all super violent. So uh, prepare yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, that actually transitioned into my next fact about uh, Denny is that uh, I read this quote that I really liked. Uh, He says, I hate violence. And I think that violence is meaningful if you see the impact of violence on victims i'm interested oh. yeah he's i'm interested on in the impact i'm not interested in the show i don't oh. want to make a show of violence i mean i've been in contact with people who have suffered the trauma of war when i use violence in a movie it's to express the power the impact of it wow yeah i really like that because i think i'm a lot like him now i'm not gonna knock action movies i mean just to give you an idea of like how okay I am with violence, um, I like uh, what's that? What's that movie with the? Oh my gosh, it's blanking. Uh, the movie with um, the guy from The Matrix, Keanu. Uh, oh, John Wick. John Wick. Okay, yeah. So I like John Wick. I I think when it's done correctly, it's really good. But I do yeah. feel and and when you're talking about John Wick, you know legends like that it's different 
But I do think that there are a lot of directors, especially nowadays, that use violence to punctuate things, and it ends up losing its impact when you show too much of it. And Mm -hmm. I don't like that cold, removed, you know, we're just watching the violence. It's almost like we're praising it, and we don't care about what's happening to the person receiving the violence. So I really like his take on it, because not only do I think that's more ethical, I actually think it's a bit more... Um, successful in displaying it. Like, I think there's greater impact when you can sympathize than when you're just watching a cold killer take people out, you know? Yeah, I I like, I really, that quote explains a lot in terms of his shot decisions because now I realize that's why he's focusing on the person experiencing pain, not on the person delivering the pain. Because yeah. usually in an action movie, they're all focused on the guy doing the, doing the, the hurting. Right. Uh, you know, you look at uh, what is it? Um, Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. And when Mr. White goes to cut the ear, you're watching Mr. White do it. You're watching the guy commit violence. You're not watching the guy suffering the violence. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Denny, you're right. In this movie, he makes you spend time with the victim of violence, even if they deserve it, even if they're asking for it. You still are watching them experience it and you're connecting with them and their pain over the perpetrator of the violence and their thrill of victory or whatever it is that they're going through. Yeah. I would almost go as far as to say, you know, with Quinn Tarantino, that's kind of his style uh, in almost all his movies. You watch yeah. the person delivering the violence. Oh yeah. But I think, and I think that's on purpose to sort of desensitize you because I think in his movies, it works. If you saw the impact on the victims the whole time, I don't know that you could even enjoy the movie. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, fair, 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 fair. Yeah, I kind of picked him as an obvious example because it's a good example. But but you're right. Like if you went the other way, his movies would be unwatchable because it'd be like, oh my god, (laughs) such a. But I, I like I like that he does that in these movies because you are meant to sympathize with the victim and, and, and because I think it's kind of rare. I think that it's disturbing to us and so we don't want to see it. Mm-hmm. And so it's much easier to, to cut away from the person experiencing the pain and it's easier to focus on the person delivering it. Um, but it really makes me want to go back and think about some of his other films. Um, I think the only one that I haven't seen, have you seen Incendies? No, no, I, I haven't, haven't seen, seen that, but I've seen Enemy, Prisoners, Sicario, and Arrival. Um, nice. I've I, seen Arrival and Prisoners, and I think that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, uh, he's got an awesome pedigree. Yeah, I, I liked Enemy okay. I, I don't know how I felt about the end. That was one of those movies that, I don't know, you'd have to go watch it, but it's kind of... There's, it's a kind of about duality. It's like there's a guy out there that's you that you are at war with. I don't know. You have to see it. Um, hmm. I'm not going to go too much into it. Okay. Explaining too much about it actually spoils the movie, but go watch that. Um, gotcha. I think that you can tell in that movie that he was, I guess, greener. Like it's definitely, to me, not as strong as Prisoners and Sicario was. Yeah. Uh, I think my favorite out of the three is Prisoners. And wow, in that movie, I... I mean, you you see the impact of violence in that film, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Out of Prisoners and Arrival, which one did you like the most? Um, you know, I, I liked Arrival more. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I mean, just most people did, yeah. Y- yeah, it's a little bit more approachable. Um, For sure. For sure. <laughs> I'll, I'll say I'll say it that way. And and then the other thing is, um, I just like I have. 
I also have a whole uh, kind of nerd fascination with the power of language and the way it impacts the human mind and the way it like in a way is a filter for control over us. Uh, sorry, I'm getting way in the weeds here. I just no, love language. No, no um, I think that's all valid. I mean, he, I think he was able to express all those ideas in a movie that normally wouldn't have that. I mean, because I think sci-fi is not normally that accessible to everybody. I, you know, I remember someone at my work telling me how brilliant this movie was and they just couldn't even wrap their mind around the language stuff. And, you know, not that yeah. the movie wasn't impressive, but I think some of that was part of my vocabulary because I like sci-fi so much. And right. I, and, and he told me like, I don't watch sci-fi. And I looked at him like, well, if you like that, why aren't you watching sci-fi? What? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, but it's cause... like he's able to open up that world. I mean, it got an Oscar nomination, which sci-fi is mm -hmm. like never do. And right. so he's he's able, like you said, to make it more accessible to people, to take such a complex uh, theory and idea and put that in a digestible movie that's not, um, that's not weak, that's not yeah. too straightforward, that's not shallow. Yeah. I mean, that's impressive. Sure. That makes me really excited for and hopeful. I, I keep being afraid they're going to pull him off the project, but I really hope that he does make Dune. Yeah. Oh, man, he would be so good at Dune. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because he really I, I, wants to. I think he even wants Ryan Gosling. I think my, my husband was telling me he read an article that he wants Ryan Gosling to be like uh, Madib or Paul. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, okay, so Gosling and he clearly work well together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, he. I saw in an interview where Denny said some of his favorite scenes with Kay were improvisations from Gosling. Really? Yeah. So I would love to see those two work together again. If they had such a good rapport on set for this movie, certainly if they're handling something like Dune, I, I'm willing to bet that they're going to produce something really great together if they if they get that chance. Yeah. Did you have any other facts about Denny? Uh, no, other than, you know, just kind of his interactions with, with those people. I saw him, he gave a, he gave a talk at Google about his thoughts of AI. Oh um, man, I got to watch that. That sounds it is, so cool. <laughs> it, it was really cool. Cause he was in the Google Plex with all of the engineers working on Google AI. Wow. So it's this so room. Awesome room full of people and the guy talking to him is like a head of one of the ai projects and he's like yeah so this is what i do and and denny was really cute he was like you make it very hard to do sci-fi because what we can imagine is possible you guys have already passed yeah which makes which makes it not sci-fi anymore it just makes <laughs> like, it reality <laughs> yeah it's yeah. interesting wow but, but they asked him a really cool question of what what do you think uh, what do you think we couldn't have AI handle? Basically, like, what do you think of being a human could not be replicated within AI? And, you know, that's a scary question for an artist because you're an artist talking to engineers and scientists who this is their specialty. Mm -hmm. He's like, the thing that, that probably wouldn't go into an AI is the, the trappings and the, the, the joy of your ancestral like past lives and the things that your parents imbue into you and how that hooks with you and stays with you and you can't escape it, but you love it. You know, like 
that is not exactly what he said, but that was the thrust of what he was saying is that the the experience of generational learning and that sort of thing, you know, an AI would never replicate. It might do something different, but it would never replicate a the the generational effect of parental learning and the emotional impact of that on a person and and that sort of thing. Um, so I I thought he did a good job of of fielding a very tough question in a room full of experts about the thing he makes art about. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good answer, and I feel in a way it, it isn't challenged in this movie, but it's definitely touched on, um, and we can talk about that as we dive in, but. You know, I mean, we'll we'll talk later about memory and how that plays such a big part in passing yeah. as human. Um, yeah. and, and that's kind of, it was sort of introduced in the first movie and fleshed out more, I think, in this one. Um, I think that, you know, Ridley Scott would show you things, show you memory, show you things, right. but not explain them in the way that this movie literally tells you why they showed you that you know yeah 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 so there's a lot more exposition in this movie than in blade runner like blade runner is can be really tough to follow it can be really tough to watch and this movie does a lot better to make it uh approachable Mm -hmm. for for your uh, average audience member for sure yeah uh i have uh, a couple quick things to discuss really quick i just thought this is one of those movies as i said earlier i really think that if you really love movies, you're hard-pressed not to be interested in this one because it's just such an interesting film study, the first one and this one. Um, mm-hmm. And because every aspect to me of this movie is done so well. you know. So we've talked about the director and just how meticulous he is. Um, and so I kind of want to transition to talking about the production design, which we touched on a little bit already. Um, yeah. The guy that handled that uh, was Denis Gasner. Uh, mm. He worked on Skyfall, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, Truman Show. And yeah. so it wasn't the original person, you know, because I, I think that guy has passed anyway, but um, that worked on Blade Runner, but he definitely had the same, I think, understanding of what is needed in this movie to be, you know, that, that rises to the occasion that the original one did in terms of the production design being so intricate and so believable it they have so many locations in this movie and it yes. feels like they're in different locations they don't look the same or you're not like oh they're in the you know oh they're kind of cheating here not showing us the whole room there's so many details that you could get lost just looking at just the details in the movie i feel like Oh, absolutely yeah when when Kay is in the street eating street food mm-hmm and the um, the prostitutes walk up to him, and one of them is like, "Hey, don't mess with him. He's a he's a he's a Blade Runner. He's dangerous." Um, you know, all of that was such a real place. Like clearly, that doesn't exist on Earth. Like that avenue doesn't exist anywhere. They created that from whole cloth. There's dirt on the street. There's worn paths where people were walking. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't do worn paths in a set you just made because it's all clean, you know, but like yeah. they did such a good job of making it feel lived in and that every location you're right was so different. Like his apartment with the home AI thing, um, it was so Spartan and then the world is so cluttered and then the farmland is so, so barren and sparse, like they did a great job of creating different spaces but you believe they're all part of the same world. Um, along that same vein, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Roger Deakins, the cinematographer. 
who also did the cinematography for movies like No Country for Old Men, yep. Skyfall Again, Prisoners, yep. Arrival, Sicario, True Grit. So yeah. works heavily with directors that obviously care a lot about the visuals and again, uh, tend to be some of my favorite directors. So, Yeah, and that guy is famous for taking time. Mm-hmm. He's like, um, they're talking about some of the lighting rigs in this movie. Um, like uh, when uh, uh, Deckard is meeting with, um, oh God, the, the head of the new corporation, what's his name? Um, uh, uh, Wallace? Or- yeah, 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 yeah. He's meeting with Wallace. Andrew Wallace, yeah. Yeah, they're having this conversation, and above them is a circular lighting rig that they invented for this movie. Oh, wow. That, that rotates. And the timing of it matches the emotional beats in the scene. So Harrison Ford's face is illuminated at the moment of a key realization that his character has. Oh, awesome. That's so I mean, great. This guy takes his time. To make mm-hmm. the lighting work. And he had a huge task on his hands for, sure. for this movie. Uh, to, to light it and to get everything set up. Uh, get the cameras in the right position. I mean, this was not an easy ask. They sh- they had to bring in a guy like this to to do all of the practical things that Denny wanted. Uh, and I agree. Like, he did a phenomenal job. And in, in, uh, in his past you know, uh, pedigree shows that he can deliver on big visuals and important visuals where you need to take this time to do the details just right. Well, and I think a, a movie like this, I mean, it, and the original could have been this way too. It, it is a dark dystopian world. And I think there's a temptation to make it too dark and make it too gritty to where you're losing detail and you're losing mm-hmm. Even emotion in the characters' faces, which I think speaks to that lighting part you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at some of his movies, like Skyfall or um, Sicario or True Grit, um, you know th- those are darker films. And so it's amazing when someone can take that and still make it beautiful. Uh, yeah. I agree with the time he takes on it that you talked about. I also read that he operates the camera himself, which is actually kind of rare for British cinematographers. Wait, wait. He, I didn't know that at all. That's mm-hmm. amazing. That's what I read on Wikipedia. Yeah. Wow. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Good. Wow. That's good for him because, yeah, normally they are very hands-off mm-hmm. with the actual equipment. They, you know, do all the planning and set everything up, but then, you know, they, they don't actually touch anything. They just have other people do that. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah, very hands-on. Um, also kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the music in this movie, uh, which is mostly uh, Hans Zimmer. Yeah, and, and he wasn't yeah. the original, right? No, no, I don't think so. I think yeah. it was somebody else, yeah. Yeah, uh, so uh, Hans Zimmer, man, he did... The music in this movie is phenomenal. And, I, um, okay, actually, one of the things I really liked about this movie, and I want to get your take on this, mm-hmm. there's, there's an audio kind of pacing to this where there's these quiet moments punctuated by very, you know, sporadic loud moments and the music follows that. Did, did you get that sense? What's your take on that? You know, just the sound design, the music, the score, the way they handled that, the pacing of this movie, what was your, what was your take on, on, on that approach? Well, I had a friend that said, uh, it was Cody. He said that he, he didn't think he could watch this movie in IMAX or, <laughs> or, or Dolby, you know, cinema because it, he'd go deaf. 
the, and, and my husband too when the person was talking he goes well at least it was a really loud movie and uh, and uh, I think it is a very I mean the sound is intense in this film it is loud and I think that it works really well and like you said then there's moments that are like almost completely silent and uh, I don't think you see both together a lot now don't quote me on that because I'm not a sound expert but when I think about movies I don't always think about the sound the way that I did with this one yeah um, well this one forces you to because they really mm-hmm. put it in your face <laughs> <laughs> and the original kind of had ha- well definitely had that aspect to it as well I mean I think one of the biggest things you walk away from with the original Blade Runner is the music you know I think it's visuals and music are yeah. so important in both these films and it's rare to have a film that has those two things and then on top of that a great story um you know some some movies are just stylistic and this movie to me has all of them pretty balanced yeah i, I was listening to the soundtrack because of course it's available on youtube uh somebody has put it together um and it's I was surprised at how subtle some of the so much of the music was because this movie is very in your face in from a sound design perspective. Yeah. Um, there's so much audible detail. It was interesting to me that at least the first I don't know half of the score that I, w- I was able to listen to is actually very subtle. Um, and 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 Zimmer does a good job of filling in those quiet spaces with with uh, some some good some good tunes. Yeah. Yeah. 100% agree. I think it may be on Spotify too. If you have Spotify. Oh. Well, um, yeah, I need to, I definitely need to, to own it. Oh man. This, this, this whole episode's making me crazier. Like I'm like, now I just go buy more things. <laughs> yeah. There's so many things I need just for this episode. Yeah. 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 So the last uh, aspect I want to talk about before we dive into the actors, um, unless did you have any more notes on the music? No, I don't. Uh, you know, Zimmer's a is. I mean, he's just so well decorated. It's it's hard to say bad things about him. So right, right. And I feel like we talk about him all the time because like he does so many movies that are so good that we just he just comes up a lot. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the writer. So there was two people writing it. Uh, Hampton Fancher, which I believe was the original writer for the for the Blade Runner screenplay. Yep. And then Michael Green is the sort of newcomer. Um, he's done a lot of different things. I think one of the movies he wrote for was, uh, was it the Green Lantern movie? <laughs> Something not oh, really? I can't. Let me look it up really quick. Yeah, sure. You think I would already have this at my fingertips? Let me... Uh, let me uh, no, I, I, I'm, a, I'm impressed with how much you have at your fingertips. <laughs> uh, let's see. Yeah, Green Lantern. Oh, but also Logan. But then oh, Alien yeah. Convent. I mean, he just kind of, he's all over the map, but I feel like what he brings to some of these movies or what he's asked to bring is sort of the newer perspective because, yeah. you know, Hampton, Hampton uh, Fancher or Fanker, hopefully I'm saying that correctly, uh, you know, he has the source material to come from in terms of the first movie. And then Michael Green's coming in with the, the newer ideas, the newer influence, influences. I mean, maybe that's where a lot of Kay's personality came from, right? Sure, um, sure, and I probably so. See a connection a little bit with this, and you know, in like Logan, um, the dialogue to me, it's more often than in the original, and I think it's a little stronger. Yeah. So, uh, a factoid about these two writers that I don't know if it's true, but I, I read it on the internet, so it's internet official. <laughs> um, 
that uh, originally was it Hampton is the original writer. Mm-hmm. Hampton, uh, they said, hey, we want you to write this. He said, okay, I'm going to give it to you in the form of a novella. So he wrote oh. like a he wrote like a hundred and something page novella and said, cool, here you go, do something with this. I'm on to other okay. things. So he wasn't like working in tandem with him. It was more just take my take what I've got and you you run with it. Which is honestly the way it's done nowadays. You know, mm-hmm. movies are almost never written by just one person unless sure. it's a writer, unless it's a writer director, and then you you can't rest, you can't take that script out of their hands. You know, because sure. they're never going to give it up. <laughs> but almost everybody's like somebody wrote it, and then somebody else does a rewrite, and then a third person comes along and does minor edits, and then that's what you get. But I think that the what they added was, I agree, uh, probably a lot of stuff with Kay to kind of update him and make him um, a great vehicle for the movie. And then specifically the blackout was added after um, – in the second writing. Mm. Because what Denny uh, – this is this came out in the, um, in the Google interview I saw with Denny. He said, you know, the problem with sci-fi is that – especially a police drama is that – it's impossible to believe that there's really any investigation that needs to happen in the streets because what should happen is the policeman goes to the office, pulls it up on his computer and searches where was this person on this day and just watches all the security camera footage and uncovers the whole crime in a future dystopian world of surveillance. Right. Right. Cause like, they set that up a lot in the movie right. too. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. He's like, so it's impossible for me to say, oh, yeah, you want to uncover some great mystery? Great. Just search it and you'll find the answer. And then the movie's over. Um, and so what they introduced was this concept of the blackout, which was a data apocalypse, for lack of a better term. It's basically the removal of you know, thousands of terabytes of, of data about people, about replicants, about finance, about everything you know the data was destroyed the backups were destroyed um the technology is still there everything still works just we don't have any record of millions or billions of people and replicants he's got to go and pull up some microfilm of dna and look at it through (laughs) some sort of (laughs) yeah that was so great and like all of those things you don't do if everything's still digitized right you know right um, it's all about kind of pulling us back into what is believable, engaging, you know, yeah. tangible. Um, and the it, best sci-fi movies, especially in the future, feel lived in, feel used, like Star right. Wars or something like that. So right. just works yeah. really well. And it lets Kay be a detective because mm-hmm. he's out in the street. He's 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 talking to people. He's reviewing old records that are hard to come by. And he, excuse me, he has to do it by hand. Um, and all of that stuff. And I, I think that the blackout was probably the least understood explained in the movie. I think that animation really helps explain a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Um, certainly like data, I think that today, if you're not afraid of data, you're not paying attention. Um, because we've got, you know, recently in the news, like Equifax and all kinds of mishandlings of data and how quickly that can ruin your life. Mm-hmm. And then what also happens if your data is gone? So there's a whole like, you know, reasonable fear, anxiety around data. And I think it's totally believable and right for them to include that in this movie of, 
hey, there was this massive bad thing that happened, but we all have to just pick up and keep on living. And it's real inconvenient because when I'm trying to find something, I can't just find it because it's all lost in the blackout. Mm-hmm. Yep. Really good point. Um, did you have any other notes about those two writers? No, that was my only like big thing about those two, like how the handoff happened. Yeah, that's that's really good. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the actors. Uh, I want to talk about Ryan Gosling, of, cur- of course. At, let, me, let me say that again. I want to talk about Ryan Gosling first, of course. Um, he was the only person that Denny had in mind for this role, and they wrote that role around him. Yeah. I mean, and you can definitely tell. Uh, I had heard some you know, concerns about Ryan Gosling from people that aren't familiar with some of his work. You know, a lot of people know him for The Notebook, uh, recently La La Land, and they kind Mm -hmm. of have a perception of him that I think is not accurate. Uh, I was not shocked at all when he was picked for this role. And he basically played it exactly how I imagined he would. And I based that on movies like Drive, Lars and the Real Girl, and All Good Mm -hmm. Things, if you've seen those three movies. I've seen all good things. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not as up on on Ryan Gosling, but I mm-hmm. do like him. Every whenever I see him, I like him. And and like even as a straight dude, I mean, come on, he's he's, he's gorgeous. <laughs> like yeah. he is he is easy on the eyes, and I'm I'm absolutely comfortable with that. For me, the uh, you've got to see Drive. I can't believe you haven't seen Drive. You've got to yeah. see that movie. I want to see it now, now that you're telling me so. <laughs> I mean, you will see so much of uh, Kay in that movie. It's crazy. Uh, he oh, takes awesome. that sort of loner, dark, violent thing. It's just really good. Um, it's oh, not, awesome. And the soundtrack is phenomenal. You will love it. Uh, that, act- that movie is what made me a fan of his. And I saw him different from then on. And then I started seeing movies like this one, um, Lars and the Real Girl, which is about a guy that is kind of weird and kind of outside of society and he's in love with a real girl doll and he just carries it with him all over the place and like (laughs) you know he's in love and wants to marry her it is such it sounds weird but it's so heartbreaking because he sells it so well and he seems so believable and so normal like not normal he seems believable and it's so sad and he, I mean, he has a moment where he expresses, like, why he turned out this way, and it's, it's such a good film. You've got to see it. Like, Oh, awesome. Yeah, I'll have to see that now, because I, I, I will write off movies like that, thinking, eh, premise. Yeah. It's, cute, it seems cute, but not quirky. interested. But no, that, yeah. that's great. That's great. Yeah. And what's funny is this movie, he kind of does that, too. Yes. Yep. With, mm-hmm. with Joy, yes. he, like, <laughs> gives her a body and carries her around with him, and she, like, snoops on him while... Uh, the prostitutes are talking to him, and it's just like, okay, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll get into that stuff later. But no, no, uh, you're right. It, it, there's yeah. a lot of parallels. I will definitely bring those up. Uh, but yeah, that that's a really good movie, and I think in Drive and in this movie, you see parts where, um, as an actor, I think Ryan Gosling has down really well is sort of that emotional break <laughs> he has, like in almost every movie like this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, you saw that for sure in All Good Things. Yeah. At least a couple times in that movie. It's funny because yeah. people used to be like, oh, he's so handsome. I love him so much. I'm like, watch all good things. <laughs> watch him <laughs> as Robert Durst and then come yeah. back to me and tell me you still think he's hot. Yeah. Uh, I really liked the emotional breaks in this movie. Yes. Um, oh, I thought so effective. I thought he, he emoted so well. And like there were moments where, okay, his character's name is Kay. 
which is like the least enthusiastic way to say yes. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think that I think that a lot of movies they put power in the in the character's name. Like that's sure. part of who they are. And so like K is kind of this like ho hum. Like when he's kind of working something in his head, he has this goofy little grin on his face of like, oh man, yeah, I guess I have to work that out, and yeah, I guess I have to deal with that now too. And I just saw that in Ryan so many times when he was, you know, in between beats where it's like, I don't know, I guess I got the impression that he understood that his life sucked and that he was accepting it, accepting of it because he had these like little things that made it okay. And I just, I think that Gosling did a great job of, of portraying the, the person with the name of K, what that person would like, you know, and then, and then later on to call him Joe. So Joe K, like he's a joke. I don't know. Like I was was just like, Oh man, you guys are really mean to him. (laughs) Like (laughs) (laughs) I've also heard, uh, you know, K as in like canine. Uh, Oh yeah. And then, uh, PDK cause he's like in a police department. It's like Philip or PK something. It's like Philip K. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, his his full name is like KD one nine dash something or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, so it's like yeah. I think his his name is multi layered, and I believe that. I mean, with Denny being uh, such a big fan of Kubrick, that I don't think that's an accident. Like you're saying, right. I don't think right. any of the things in this movie are an accident to me. Right, um, like when, Joy Joy's name J O I. There's mm-hmm. there's there's meaning behind that for sure. For sure, yes. Uh, also, unlike many successful actors near his age, he has no entourage. I don't know if you know, like, maybe you don't follow, like, gossip blog stuff. I don't follow it as much anymore. But he's not somebody you see a lot with a lot of people. He has very few close friends. And he oh. even admits to preferring solitude when he's not working. Wow. Yeah. That, that man, that really informs his character very well. That's pretty awesome. Uh, did you have any more uh, facts on Ryan Gosling? No, no, no. Okay, don't. let's let's kind of run through a couple people really fast, and then finally get to the movie. I'm sorry, I know I made this really long. I no, just, no, this just is fun. so much to talk about. Uh, yeah. Uh, I guess we already talked a little bit about Dave Bautista. He plays Sapper Morton. Um, mm-hmm. I know him from Guardians One and Two. He was also Inspector, which I didn't hmm. remember that. Um, but yeah, he's from the wrestling world, and that's kind of where he got his start. I I think. He really, in this movie, he really makes that, I mean, I don't know who's a better actor, him or, like, The Rock. I feel like he's better, right? Like, Well, wow. uh, yeah, um, okay, so I think it really matters who your director is, yeah. right? Yes, that's and, true. And so Dave was saying that Danny was pretty specific, or, sorry, actually, um, uh, uh, Scott, the, when he did his short, when he did oh, his short, okay. Scott was very specific with him with what he wanted in every scene. And he was Ooh. like, we had, to, we had to redo a bunch of stuff because he needed me to do it a certain way. Oh, um, so he brought out the best in him. Sure. Or he brought out exactly wanted what he wanted out of the guy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, so Batista and The Rock and all the guys that come from wrestling, like, I think that's awesome. I love it when they can do that kind of transition. Like as a kid, I watched WWE and WWF. Like I was one of those kids. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Dave Batista, like I can see it. I can see him making that transition from wrestling into this. Um, I like what he's do- what he's done so far. I hope he gets more work. Mm-hmm. I mean, The Rock, he is taken care of. J- Dwayne, D- <laughs> yes. you know, Johnson is fine. But Dave Batista, I think we can get 
some really good stuff out of him, and I hope that people pick him up and and bring them bring him into their movies because he has something to give there, and I want to see more of it. You know. Um, let's talk a little bit about Robin Wright real quick, otherwise known as Lieutenant Joshi, I guess is how you say it, or Joshi. <laughs> I don't yeah, she would say her name in the movie, do they? <laughs> I don't remember. She's just his boss, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Kay's boss. Yeah. Um, she is. Man, she's prolific right now. I mean, House she of Cards, is. and she's in so many things right now. Wonder Woman and Time yeah. Uh She started out, I think, in Forrest Gump was like her big breakout role. And then, of course, she did Princess Bride. That mm-hmm. Princess Bride may have been before that, actually. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Princess yeah. Bride would have been before okay. Forrest Gump. But yeah. still, she mm-hmm. she has had a good career and is right now really doing a lot of good stuff. Mm-hmm. She's a Dallas native. What? Yeah. I read oh, that that's today. awesome. But um, that's awesome. we'll probably get into it when we talk about the plot, but I had a completely different take on her character than on some of the other opinions I've heard about her. I actually think that her as the boss, she's actually pretty complex, and we can dive into that later. But I really liked how she played this role, and I think it's it's subtle, but I felt like she added some layers there that were really impressive. Nice. Yeah. Um, her interviews that I've seen about this movie are pretty straightforward. So I'd, okay, I'd love, okay. I'd lo- love to hear what you're, what you're thinking there. And I, I, I agree that there's definitely room there. I might not have seen it, but I want to hear about it because okay. I, you know, well, definitely. I haven't seen those interviews so that that will be eye opening for me. Maybe I'm looking for something, you know, I want to, I I'll, we'll bounce that off each other. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, also, you know, obviously have to mention Jared Leto. I was kind of shocked as to how sparingly Wallace is actually in the movie. Like, to me, yeah. from the trailer and even the shorts, they made it seem like he'd be there the whole time. And right. he, he is the bad guy, but but he's oh, not. Man. Like, it's it's kind of like the bad guy is something more... Did you feel that way? Like, something a little bit more intangible than just him? Like, he's definitely the bad guy, but... There's yeah, more, it's more complicated than that. Yeah, like he is the bad guy. Like in Serenity, the uh, the the guy that's hunting them, he's like, "Oh, I'm a monster." You know, Jared Leto is the monster kind of. Like he has a monstrous take on the world and a level of certainty, but it's not because of him. It's like the world has propelled him in this place of. Mm-hmm. We need more labor, and you have to provide it. Um, and so he comes to monstrous conclusions, I think. Right. Um, and so he is. I mean, I, I mean, obviously he's a tycoon. So I mean, he's he's clearly going to be a bad guy in any cyberpunk movie. I mean, any any head of business in a cyberpunk movie is always the bad guy. Um, That's <laughs> there's true. no. That's true. <laughs> there's the never like alien or you know. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the the captain of industry is never the hero in uh, cyberpunk. So <laughs> yeah. I will say I was really surprised. I read a quote from him, and I still don't like it. I guess as an actor, you have to be you have to sympathize with your character, or you can't play them convincingly but he said that he doesn't see him as a bad guy at all that he's just doing whatever is necessary and i took issue with that because of some of his quotes in the movie his justifications of you know oh we lost our taste for slavery and yeah you know it's like it's like wow you know to me i agree that throughout history we have made advancements like he says, on the backs of other people. But 
I am not okay with that. <laughs> so it's right. kind of like, it, it was interesting to me the way he saw it. And, and to me, he's so clearly not a good person. But the way he played it, he felt like, well, I'm just doing, you know, what's right. But right. the other side of that is, yeah, you're doing what's right, but you're not making any sacrifice. And, and that's kind <laughs> of what someone in that position does. That's why they're always the bad guy is they'll say things like, well, we have to make sacrifices. Well, these things have to happen, but they never right. have to happen to them. And there's, right. And obviously with his blindness, the character's blindness in the movie, I feel like they're playing a lot of, he, he feels a serious loss of control, a serious slight against him that he lost his sight. It, it feels like that's a big part of his motivation, which interesting, uh, interestingly, they never really touch on, right? They don't ever go into that. Right. Yeah, that's just who he is. You have no explanation of how that happened. Why wasn't it corrected? Surely they could correct it in the age that he lives in. And he has little drones or something like that that allow him at some point to uh, make it look like he can see something. Yeah, they make those um, creepy sounds. Sound like yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, you know, I think that bad guys don't know that they're bad. Sure, sure. That's that's a very fair point. And, and they're hard to buy if they know they're bad, it's like, come on. Like everyone yeah. thinks they're doing the right thing. So yeah. Yeah. Like Cobra commander in GI Joe, obviously the bad guy and doesn't is not believable. You know, like you yeah. don't <laughs> think that person comes from anything, but some there, there is something to be said about, well, if you forget that replicants or if you divorce, divorce yourself from the replicants are, uh, are like people, if they are really automatons to you, then in his view, he is making cars. And mm -hmm. those cars' jobs is to go out and do work that other people don't want to do. And so, sure, you know, like he can do monstrous things to cars because they're just cars. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so for him, you know, he can do that because in his character's mind, the replicants are basically toasters or vehicles or robots. They Sure, they have emotions and that's, kind of a drag for him but you know t he is using them as a tool right mm -hmm. um and you know ourselves in our society we are now struggling with automation you know automation or robots are uh you know encroaching on various labor forces across the world and we are you know facing that mm -hmm. and you know for, from his perspective like he'll make millions of robots and wipe them out because he doesn't care right. um but when we're looking at them as replicants, they look human, they act human, they clearly feel emotions like humans. Um, so to treat them that way is just barbaric. Yeah. Uh, and, and certainly anything that's personified, you don't want to do that. Like, but you know, you take either of those two concepts to their, you know, final point, and you see why Jared Leto thinks, well, his character's not bad. He's just hurting objects. That's um, so interesting that. Uh... Because I see that character differently, but I like that. Oh, I like that explanation. No. Yeah. So, uh, so tell me how you're seeing it. Like, how is, how is, uh, how is he different? Um, so, because I want to hear that take too. Okay. So I, I think that Wallace, I felt like he got pleasure, almost eroticism from killing the replicants at certain scenes. Oh, like yeah. he, he enjoyed that power over life, and the fact that he wanted them to have babies that he he's his justification is that he needs to make a lot more but i thought that it made him a god 
if he was able to create something that gave birth. And I felt like they were calling back. I can't remember the name of what was it? Tyrell, the name of the original guy. That was Tyrell, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, Tyrell. Um, yeah. I think Ty, he. They were implying in this movie. I mean, he heavily implies that Tyrell was sort of on that point. That's he was just getting mad with power and going nuts with what he was doing, and mm-hmm. got shut down and went bankrupt. And Jared Leto's character is just power hungry enough to want that power again, and so. Yeah. But I see it both ways. I think it's ambiguous on purpose. I think we're both right. It's however you choose to see his motivation. And obviously, from what you're saying, Jared Leto chooses to see it the way that you're saying it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I I completely agree that his character was a megalomaniac, power hungry (laughs) dude. Like, and you're absolutely right. Like, once the, I mean, the whole movie is centered around the whole idea of, of, uh, giving birth to robots or to, to replicants and 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 them as a species, and then what separates them from humanity is now gone um, from a lot of perspectives. Certainly, like what what kind of rights and responsibilities they could have, mm-hmm. or rather, what kind of rights they should have. Um, and so, I think that it's absolutely correct to say that a monster would think that by giving by having an a replicant that could give birth makes him a god it also makes them people mm-hmm. which makes them no longer usable as slaves because now they can have generations and they can do all the other stuff that humans can do like have emotions and fears and and wants and desires um now that they're able to make themselves as parents and as children that you're no you're they're now a, a people you know you can't treat them like like slaves, you can't do that to them anymore. Um, so absolutely, that, that's a really good point that by wanting that and seeking that power and that kind of godhood, he's ignoring the fact that he then makes them people. Right. And I felt like, you know, he was responsible for saving the human race, right? Because he made that food source that everyone's existing on in this timeline. Uh, yeah. So it almost felt like that wasn't enough for him. And it also makes you question his motives for saving mankind. You know, did he save mankind because he wanted mankind to continue because he's such a good person? Or did he save mankind because that makes him responsible for all of our continuing? You know, it it makes him responsible for the human race and, again, gives him control. And then once again, he's just added again, how can I get even more control? Well, I could become literally a god. You know, right. And so right. I just, you know, I, I'll admit it when we had those kind of characters I've never liked. I, I don't think you're meant to, but, uh, uh, that was how I saw him. But yeah, but the, the, uh, paradox, I guess, is that we do need it. So it's like, I don't know, you know, you could look at it either way. I certainly think that the human race as a whole would possibly try to turn a blind eye to it. Sure. Or it's the tipping point of, okay, you are a monster, we're done now. Because right. obviously a lot of the characters, including Robin Wright's character, do not think that's okay. That's a definite line. It's terrifying territory. We're not going yeah. there. So, Yeah, and, and Robin Wright and Leto, their characters are on total opposite ends of that spectrum in terms of what they want for their worlds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which makes her the best good guy, you know, in yeah. terms of like she's the leader of the opposition to what Jared Leto is trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a sense, you know, she's trying to st- uncover and stop something that, uh, that is, is his goal. 
Um, and I think that, like, I think that's what makes his character so good is that, like, I could submit this reading of how he sees the world as uh, maybe as a savior and maybe now the world owes him something. I mean, the savior thing is definitely, like, the Jesus stuff is implied. Yeah. I mean, the, did yeah. he even said that in... You know, right. I feel like the, the, <laughs> yeah. his his uh, facial doesn't he have facial hair too in the movie? I don't know. Just his oh, haircut oh yeah, and just oh yeah, he he looks like he looks like cyberpunk Jesus for sure. Right, right. So it's it, it's it's heavily implied. He's also in that like weird birthing room. I've heard it described <laughs> that oh, yeah. watery like you know womb or whatever. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, in yeah. in his in his room is the only room with a lot of wood in it. Like wood mm. is super scarce and he has this room totally decked out in it. It's kind of like a Japanese water garden yeah. uh area for him to have tranquility and peace while he you know then goes to the next room over and stabs a replicant in the belly yeah. uh because she can't <laughs> give birth like oh my gosh dude. Like I agree um I guess that's what I like about his character is yeah. that there are a lot of nuances. There's a lot of ways to read it. And if you want to make him a pseudo good guy in your brain, you can do that. Yeah. Um, and I think that any, any bad guy in a cyberpunk, you know, thing needs to have something so giant and so monolithic that it's clearly not manageable, but they believe that they're in charge. And I think that Leto portrays that and his whole character is written around that kind of duality of he was once a good guy but he's now clearly a bad guy mm-hmm. nope i totally agree um i have the the names of the other actors but i don't think i don't have a lot of background on them really so i'll just casually kind of throw their names in the hat as we talk yep. about the plot because i think we should probably dive into that at some point <laughs> yeah yeah uh, so let's uh, let's just kind of go through our sort of like favorite scenes or what we really enjoyed about the movie. We don't have to go through it a hundred percent chronologically, but sure. just kind of talk about what we liked about it. I'll let you start. Um, so I think one of my favorite mo- uh, scenes is the dream that keeps coming back up, mm-hmm. and the way that the dream morphs throughout. Or, or the the importance of the dream and the way it changes. So, so Kay has this dream about uh, fighting to protect his wooden horse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that and he uses that dream to explain himself to um, uh, to Robin Wright's character, the lieutenant. She asks him, you know, hey, you all have these dreams, you know, what's one you got? And he gives him the one that's the most important to him, um, and that that dream is the impetus for his investigation in a sense and the thread that ties it all together for him as who is the dream maker right and how when he shows her the dream and she watches it she relives it and cries and in the first time i see that i thought oh well she's crying because it's such a such a visceral experience she can identify that it was a dream for real um, mm-hmm. But then later on in the movie, you realize, no, she was reliving the memory mm-hmm. and or sorry, not dreams. It's this memory that he has this whole time. She's right. reliving the memory. And that's why she's crying, because she's remembering that she left her horse and she got beat up and all these horrible things happened to her. And I just love that that dream and the way it was used as a vehicle throughout the plot 
I, I thought that was really smart on their part um, and, and how that was how that was the clue that he used to realize that, oh, no, she is actually the child in all of this. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, I, I've, I've heard people say that they don't like that. They think this part of the, the story is weird where how could Kay ever think that maybe he's human or maybe he's a product of. Uh, you know, a person and a replicant when he only has a couple memories, you know, isn't that inauthentic? But I think my reading of the movie is that he does have a lot of memories and he knows Mm -hmm. they're all fake and they're convincing enough to where his whole life seems real, but he has to objectively know that it's not. And so there's this sort of, you know, that's, that's a real conflict for him because he feels real. He yeah. has those memories, and uh, and that's his most important one. Not that he doesn't have other ones, but this is the one that is, I guess, different from the other memories in a way that he formulated his entire personality around it, yeah. it seemed like. You know, it, it shaped him. And yeah. how can something that didn't happen to him shape him? You know, and I think that troubles him, and I think that... Uh, that first scene where he tells Robin Wright's character, th- that's the part of the movie where I feel like sh- there's a different reading to her than, you know, some people have said like, oh, she's like bad at her job. She let him get away later. Da, 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 da. But in this scene, I felt like she was sort of falling in love with him. Mm. I felt like she had a real connection to him. And I think it was sort of passed off in the scene as just sexual because... You know, she, she makes that comment, what happens if I finish that whole bottle of vodka? Yeah. And then she makes a comment of, you know, sometimes I forget with you. You're the only one that I ever forget with, which is partially her sort of giving away her motivation, but also to make us as the audience question if he's really a replicant or not. Mm. Um, and I also think that uh, she is pu- pulling that wall down. And then when she makes that comment about the alcohol, even more like, hey, I'm starting to see you as a real person. And she even says something like, we're all trying to hold on to something real. Yeah. Like she's pretty much as lonely as he is. And she's definitely letting her mind go there. And to me, that's why she saves him later. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree that um, she definitely threw in some overtones there in that scene where she was connecting with him. And she was like, I like that. You know, you're fighting for what's yours. Um, and I think that, um, I I think that she has, uh, what is it? She has a a sense of responsibility to him because at any point he could have bailed on her. Mm -hmm. He could have said, you know what? You're right. This is weird. And I'm out. But he kept at it and kept doing as she asked and every step he went, at any point, he could have left. And, you know, that's one of the things that, like, you know, there's clearly replicants on the run, and he hunts them, so he would be pretty good at running. Yeah, um, that's true. And so so she, as he goes, she trusts him more and more and more. And even at the end, when he fails his baseline test, she's mad at him for failing, not because he failed, but because it means she can't be around him anymore. Yeah, and because is he human? It it seems like that entire test is just to keep the replicants from fully realizing, like, that they have, that they're complex. Because 
you know, they have to constantly convince their higher ups every day that that they have nothing else going on in their mind, that they don't question things, that they'll do right. everything they're asked to do. Once they right. screw that up, I mean, they're human, essentially. So, you know, that's scary for him and for her. Right, right. Yeah, they're, they're flawed enough to now be erratic and therefore not, no longer replicants that, yeah. that they can keep around. Um, and yeah, I mean, she saves his life by saying, look, I can get you out of the building, but you can't come back. And she's like yeah. monitoring him, but not really. I mean, mm -hmm. she on purpose, you know, like when he says that I did it, I killed the child. Did you also get this weird feeling like even though she kept saying she wanted him to go out there and kill it, she would ask him questions like, does that upset you? And he would say things like, well, I've never killed something that was born. And again, she's really lonely. I don't know. Like a part of me was like. Does she kind of not want him to, or at the very least, does she know he won't do it and she just doesn't care? Like, she's like, I care about him so much. I, I know he didn't do it, but I'm just going to let him run away now and just let the chips fall where they may like. <laughs> I feel like saying that she, you know, didn't do that on purpose would be weird because she just, it seems so intentional to me. Even when love later uh, confronts her, she's still trying to protect him. It's just, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, um, I guess, yeah, my read of it was, you know, they weren't, sorry, they couldn't be explicit. Right. Right. They because she couldn't. Could. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're in a, probably a monitored room. You can't say, hey, go find this kid and kill it. Cause it, you know, so they had to be, uh, in, in overtones the whole time. Mm -hmm. And he, even in that moment said just enough for her to go ahead and say, okay, yeah, he took care of it. You know, yes, he didn't, yeah. he didn't, he didn't say, oh yeah, I totally bashed that kid's head in. Um, he was like, yeah, it's taken care of. Um, and that gives her what she needs. Right. Mm -hmm. And then later on when love shows up, I, I agree like that. I, love tells her, oh, you believe that that happened? That's when Robin right gets up and goes and gets another shaky glass of whiskey. You know, like she is terrified that she might have been wrong on her read of K. Oh, okay. That's and interesting. She, That's a totally different read. I love that. Yeah. And 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 she and she now realizes that she's about to die. Um because there's no way that somebody walks into your office, delivers that news to you and then lets you walk out. Mm, okay. Um yeah, I think that I think that she I think she had a lot of faith in him, and I think that that may have translated into some some affection and admiration, and maybe even lust. And you know, she she probably had some of those kind of inklings moving around in there. I could totally see that for that character, um, and that plays into the whole boss subservient thing. This whole movie touches on a lot of those weird power dynamics yeah definitely a lot of control and i mean even mm -hmm. joy kind of picks up on it too she mentions later like oh do you like your boss or you know however she phrases it yeah it, it even seemed like Kay was really struggling with who to have feelings for in the movie to me whether you know sure. he he chose joy in the end but he was struggling i think with his boss with joy and with the prostitute it was like what do i go for here you know who who is really making a real connection with me and who's manipulating me. Right. And it was really, I think even in the end, we'll get into it, but I think it's really hard to tell. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And so I, you know, 
I agree that she has more going on than she's some sort of like, I don't know, horny drunk boss. <laughs> <laughs> but she also is that. <laughs> you know, she yeah. is. It's both, yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 Uh, so in the interviews she gave, she was really straight uh, with, well, my character's motivation is she's she's trying to keep the world in order. She's trying to keep the world in balance. Mm, okay. That makes um, sense. But – I think that that is maybe the answer she has to give because she's trying to get people into the theater. You know, she can't be like, ah, well, I have this weird thing with the guy. Like, that's, you can't, you know, that's not going to get people into the theater. But if you say, hey, you know, my job is to keep order in the world and that matters. Um, and people are like, oh, wow, that's a, that's a hardcore stance to take. Let's go see that. Yeah, um, and maybe it's both. Maybe it starts that way and then it sure. ends, she ends up getting, she's only human and she gets a little lost and confused and her motivations yeah. start to slip, you know, I mean, like a real person would. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I hate that. I, I'm sorry. I glossed over the, the, the dream or the memory. I want to go back to that. Uh, when we were talking about the, the, the wooden horse, um, I kind of got sidetracked, but let's go back to that horse, uh, the little wooden horse, uh, memory. Um, I, I agree with you. I think the first blade runner, especially the after cut or the final cut, um, there's almost too many dreams and too many yeah. memories to where you're like, okay, like what is this adding up to? I think, uh -huh. Uh -huh. I mean, I think if you, if you understand what really Scott's trying to say, for sure, you'll love all those scenes, but mm -hmm. a lot, there it, it's very ambiguous. He doesn't actually come out and say almost anything in that movie about it other than like, how could we have all had the same memory unless we're all replicants? You know what I mean? Like, I yeah. think they're putting that idea in there, but he's not coming out and saying it. By picking one memory and showing it to you over and over, I think it makes it a lot easier for the audience to follow the significance of it. Right. And I thought it was a really interesting take on how unreliable memories are and how unreliable, you know, because uh, she talks, the, the dream maker talks about that, that there's a lot... You know, we think that memories are about detail, but actually it's the missing detail that makes them authentic. Um, mm -hmm. But doesn't that also make it harder for him to tell if he's human? Um, because it's not authentic, but even our own memories are not reliable. So how do we know we're human? You know, it's right. just multi-layered. I like that about yeah. it. Yeah, in, in that the that you can't go back and find any data on any of this stuff because it's all gone. So all you have is memory. Mm -hmm. And a few little teeny tiny hard facts out there, you can't piece that together. I think that, you know, and that's also a really, you know, that was a hook that was used by Joy to say, no, you have this memory. You're you're a real boy, basically. Yeah, I love that part. Yeah, I was thinking Pinocchio. <laughs> you're a real yeah. boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're a Joe. You're not just K. You're a Joe. And like that whole thing really predicated on the fact that he had this memory what would, that was then confirmed to be real. You know, like well, he, yeah. he, he had a lot of reasons to think, oh, man, maybe maybe I was born. Maybe I am the one, you know. Um, and I think that he started off as a detective and allowed himself to get sucked into this fantasy of – well, maybe I am the one. And in most movies, he'd have been the one. Yes, right? and that's what I love about this one, that he's not. I did start to doubt, I'll be honest with you, pretty early on that he was the one because 
I thought that was too obvious and not something that Denis would do. And then <laughs> I like how your knowledge of Denny means like, no, 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 there's more to this for sure. <laughs> yeah. And even when I saw the dream maker, I thought, you know what? They're setting up this idea, the whole movie that it's a boy. Why does it even have to be a boy? And so right. I started to doubt early on. I was like, I bet they're going to throw a curveball and it's a girl. And then I was like, okay, that's definitely her. Like yep. I kind of put it together, but only, like I said, I do think it's because I know how he in his other movies kind of think. So I mm-hmm. sort of saw that coming, but, uh, but yeah, I yeah. think that it's also a switch that's flipped. I mean, once he lets his mind go there, that there's more meaning in his life in his world, he can't, he can't turn it off. Yeah. It yeah. Drives yeah. The rest of the movie. It's like, yeah, I, I yeah. agree. Totally. And you get the, um, you know, when he's looking at the DNA, in the in the like old rotoscope, he finds the boy and the girl's DNAs match perfectly, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Oh my god!" And he looks it up, and one of them's dead, and the other one's not, and the one that's not dead is a boy. Right, total misdirect. Yeah, and he has all these reasons to think it's him or a boy, and why not? Why not me? You know, um, it, that's like classic film noir. Here's a bunch of clues, Mister and Mrs. Audience members, but you're gonna have the wrong context when you look at them. And so you're going to think they mean something that they don't. And he's right along in that ride thinking, oh, well, this is a boy um, that is uh, that left the orphanage. And isn't that interesting? Um, And then it's so when they they do the reveal with the prostitute that brings him into the resistance Mm -hmm. um, or rather um, after that scene with Joy and the prostitute, she puts a tracker in him. Anyways, the resistance gets to him. Um, and the leader of the resistance, she laughs at him. Yeah, she's like, we all thought that. Yeah, I loved that. That was, okay, that's really hard for an audience member. Because the audience is like, oh, I'm in on this train. I think he's the one. Now it's been explained to me in brutal detail that he's not the one. And now I'm being laughed at by one of the characters. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's sort of a laughter mixed with pain, right? Because she probably yeah. went through that herself. Yeah. On some yeah, level. I mean, maybe not the same way he did because she saw the baby was born. But right. she wanted to believe that she was unique, that she had meaning, and she didn't. Mm-hmm. That's right. painful. Yeah. Um, and, and that the only replicant who really had meaning died at birth. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I <laughs> I agree with you that like it, it really ties the entire film together and uh, that it, it does a great job of misdirecting us in the movie. And then that reveal, like you said, it's so it's got so much impact. It's so upsetting. And I, I like the part uh, where he told the dream maker, I knew it was real. He says that and then that's paralleled later. When Harrison yeah. Ford says the same thing to Wallace, when Wallace questions his love for Rachel, again another oh. ambiguous like mystery. Yeah. Where he goes, "Didn't you think it was weird the moment you saw her when you fell in love with her? Like, didn't any of that feel unreal or planned?" Which could be played both ways. Was is he saying Tyrell was manipulating him into falling in love with her, or is he saying he's also a replicant? You were designed to fall in love with her. Right. Whatever the whatever the uh, context truly means, Harrison Ford says, "I know what's real." And yeah, it, and to me that was like, it, it is impossible. Your perception on reality, it is not possible in that world to know what's real. <laughs> right. Know? Well, in that okay, that whole like what's real and what's not, that is straight up Philip K. Dick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah, whole he plays with the, that a lot. Yes. That whole thread of what's real, what's fake, 
what is the what's what's actual reality what is a group hallucination you know he is all over that and the whole idea of what love is real i okay my second favorite scene in this movie is the is really the collection of scenes with joy and uh gosling oh for uh, sure yeah okay their whole love arc because gosling is a replicant he's in some senses programmed um joy clearly a program right Mm -hmm. you know he's a program who bought a program to make his life better and she dutifully does that as the you know housewife that she was programmed to be but even though those two are artificial their affection for one another is genuine or feels genuine Mm -hmm. Um, and I, th- I love that Denny wouldn't let it go that the very end after she's dead and he's walking on that gangplank and he sees the ad for her again and she leans down all naked and beautiful and all that kind of stuff and says, you're a Joe. And it just crushes all of the like love and emotion that they had together because she uses the same name and it's like oh was it all fake or wasn't it and i i love that because that's so so cyberpunk and that's so philip k dick to be like look what you experience is real and and what they experienced was clearly real but if they can experience it as real love and they're programmed to do that, what about our own sense of love as people? Like, we as people are kind of programmed to fall in love with each other, you know? Like, we have to go and make families in order for the species to survive, and one component of that is romance and love and sex and all that stuff. Um, and so, like, I just I just love all of the questions that whole love arc raises oh, about... Oh, for sure, and it's paralleled with the, with the relationship with um harrison ford and rachel as well yeah 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 absolutely because the whole time is like well wh- what they had was that real or not you know could they have really made a kid together um yeah yeah I, 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 go ahead sorry go ahead. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no no you go <laughs> no um uh, i guess the only other thing is the the i do want to talk about the scene with joy and the prostitute okay I, I, okay, I'll interject really quick with this thought, yeah. uh, building off of what you said. Um, I've had some friends that I saw the movie with that said things like, you know, well, Joy, she really, really did love him. And like, that was clear to, to them watching the movie that it was real. And I said, well, I think that reveal at the end where he has that moment with the naked person calling him a Joe. I mean, he had to have seen that advertisement before. I don't think that's the first time he ever saw it, or at least that was my reading. I felt like that was a reveal for us, the audience. So yeah. that's why the whole movie, he had such a hard time buying her act because she was literally designed for lonely men and to make them <laughs> feel good about themselves. She says that. She says, like, I'm for someone like you. It's You're like, right. It's like a world where people are lonely and they're craving a connection. And so they literally design. It's like... I don't know. It reminds me a lot of, of, of like now where people are having trouble making real connections. And, you you know, like you've heard like in Japan about somebody marrying like a pillowcase or mm-hmm. wanting to marry a game or saying 2D women are better 
than real women. Well, why is that? Is it because we're losing our ability to connect with each other? Like, it's kind of a weird thought. Yeah. So she is literally designed to cater towards his needs. I mean, she... She tells him he's special. He's different. Um, I told you you were special. I told you you were different. You're a Joe. Mm-hmm. You're not a K. She's literally designed to make him feel authentic. And that's why he fought it so much. Because he's like, no, yeah. that's your programming. You don't actually feel that way. And then yeah. he finally caved into it. And then at the end, when he's seeing that again, he's almost like, I, I don't know exactly what he's thinking. He's obviously devastated. But he could it could kind of go either way where he's thinking that he really misses her and that he he's seeing her again in a weird way or he's thinking yeah like i thought none of that was real i mean and then here's the other layer um like with rachel and harrison ford's character um does it even matter if it's real or not because like you said in a way we're sort of programmed to procreate to meet each other to make real connections and we feel like it's all fate and for some reason as humans we that has to be real 100% to us even though on some level we know that for the human race to live on that kind of has to happen but we, we live in a fantasy ironically that it's all sort of magic and you know my love for the people I'm with my family it's all real and it's unbreakable and it's true but we're ignoring a pretty obvious fact that, you know, we're sort of in a way programmed to do that. So how is Kay's feelings, his connection with Joy, how is that any different? Like, it's really not. If we think that's what makes us human and them not, it, I think this movie is saying, well, that's, that, that barrier isn't even really there if you're honest with yourself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. If you take, if you take a moment of self-introspection, about that question, you know that that's not the membrane that separates us from replicants. Like, right. you know, because perception is reality. And you and I, we can look at the news today and see a whole host of people that, you know, their reality is completely different than my own. And and that is real. You know, people have their own senses of reality. What is real? What's not? You know, what's right? What's wrong? Mm-hmm. And it's all different. And these are all people. You know, you throw in a little bit of replicant, you know, spice on top of all that mix, and it's just even worse. Um, but I think that that's one of the things I love about this, and this, you know, one of the things about this that makes me feel like this is a true understanding of who Philip K. Dick was, because this question he asks, this is something that cyberpunk asks, that every sci-fi sci-fi that talks about androids in general asks this kind of stuff, and I love that they did it, and they spent the whole movie setting you up for that crushing reveal at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, because the whole movie they spend just selling you and Kay on the fact that her love for him is real. Yeah. And in the end, he he feels it. He feels love for her. And he is devastated when she gets crushed by love. Um, the the angel um, that crushes him, crushes her little stick. Yeah. Um, and, like, I just love that because it just opens up all of the reasons why I like cyberpunk in general and and the human condition and the way that that allows us to explore it uh, and, and try and understand it better. Yeah, and I think uh, one thought that I had watching this a second time with Joy, like I said, I noticed that relationship aspect, but also 
And I don't feel like they come out and say it a ton of times, except for when she completely separates from her her home thing. You know, when she's like, erase it so they can't follow us. Um, mm-hmm. But the entire movie, and I think you mentioned this earlier too, she was really feeding this information to Wallace because I that's my reading of it. Because, mm. because if you go back and watch it, Love says things like, oh, you have our product too. Are you enjoying it? And then she mm-hmm. mentions it later again. Did you enjoy it? Um, mm-hmm. Isn't she in a weird way saying, like, she manipulated you and led us to you. I don't know if she consciously did it, but even the scenes where she's with him in the microfish or whatever lab, the microfilm lab, like Mm -hmm. he let her see and hear all of his info. And she is a product of Wallace's like that, (laughs) that is, you know, later (laughs) when Wallace is saying like, there's a child and like, let's celebrate. And he already knows. I think he got that from joy. Yeah. I mean, wow. He, he yeah, had, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I didn't connect that he knew about the kid because of Joy, but that makes perfect sense. Because I've heard like, oh, he knew about it because maybe he got some info from Tyrell. But I was like, I feel like they covered their tracks pretty well with that. But mm-hmm. we know for sure that Joy is his product. And we know for sure that they were tracking her. Mm-hmm. And and I think that there's sort of a misdirect of whenever he comes to the lab, she mentions, oh, you have our product, and that sets up later for them to track it. But I think that he was probably already tracking it. Yeah. Wow. Man, that is so smart. That that I, I agree with that completely. Because I remember thinking, like, man, isn't she, like, theirs? Yeah. <laughs> isn't it, like, a really bad idea? Like, it would be as if I had my Facebook app open the entire time I was on a big investigation about Zuckerberg. You know? Yeah. Like, like, I would not do that. <laughs> and, like, he even, I mean, she even fuels his desire to find out more information. She constantly tells him, you're special. You're so different. Oh, remember that part of the dream? Oh, why didn't you say this part? What are you going to do next and like mm-hmm. he tells her everything that he's mm-hmm. gonna do mm-hmm. and yeah. she motivates him to do it like to me i feel like that could have been wallace doing that i don't know wow yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> like i yeah the whole joy thing um the huge existential questions and crisis all around that you know <laughs> like sure. You know, uh, because you're absolutely right. Like she is a she is a companion, but you can't trust her because she's a product, right? But he ends up trusting her because he eventually feels that her stated affections are legitimate, and that she ends up being one of the few people he feels like he can trust, whether or not that's misplaced trust. You know, yeah. and it could be that she doesn't know she's reporting all that stuff back. It sure. could be that she really loves him and she means everything she says. It could be sure. that she's programmed to do all that and that's why right. she did it. Right. It yeah. almost doesn't know. matter because it's like, you know, I mean, we do that for each other as well to build each other up and tell each other what we want to hear. I don't know. It's really complicated, yeah. but that's kind of the way I saw it. And uh, regardless of what her intentions was, and I, and I also noticed the second time I watched it, the prostitute said, you know, I've been inside there you're not as complicated as you think. I mean, she could have sensed that he was feeding Wallace and she was feeding Wallace information too. I don't know. Yeah. Like yeah. that was kind of a weird statement that she made to her that was never really explained. So, yeah, you know, that's one of the areas where I, that made joy more believable to me. So, you know, in that scene, she hires the prostitute to come and be with 
K mm-hmm. kind of as her surrogate in a uh, like a cuckoldy type thing. Yep. Um, and so after that scene, like the scene itself, I don't care about so much, but after that scene where there's that interplay between those two and, and joy is like, okay, thanks. You're done now. Why are you still here? Yeah. Um, and, and treats her like garbage basically. Yeah. That's where I believed that joy actually does have real feelings for Kay Mm -hmm. because she is acting like she's jealous, not to Kay. Kay is not even in the room. He has no sense of that. So why act jealous if it's a fake? True. Um, so that was one of the scenes that kind of sold it for me was, okay, yeah, she's a product and she might not be trustworthy on that product level, but for her, in her experience, she is acting like she does love him. Mm-hmm. And that may and, even be why that character says in, in retort, well, you're mm-hmm. not really that complicated, by the way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You think you have love, but you don't. And I know that because I've been inside you. Yeah. I've been in your head before. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's definitely a power play, I think, between the replicants, between the projection. I mean, they're all sort of trying, you know, love and K, like Mm -hmm. they're all, it's all sort of a a power play. It's interesting the way they kind of elevate themselves over each other in different ways. You know, the the prostitute says, oh, you don't like real girls. Um, Right. You know, and then the, the, the real, uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, the projection is like, okay, I don't need you. I just needed your body. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just like, it's a power play amongst each other too. So it's like, I don't know. Yeah, there's so many ways to read it, but I just love it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That is one of the things that I really do like about this movie is just how layered it is and how you can understand each character's positions and their motivations. Like, again, I get back to that every time. Like, I need every character to have a a motivation I I can say is theirs. And Joy's motivation I can see as, you know, she starts off as a product, but as she gets exposed to him and as he does things for her, she begins to fall for him in the way that she can. Yeah. Um, and that, that on her level and her understanding of it, that it's as real as it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, you know, in my view, you know, taking a step back in my own, like, programmed need to have emotions and love and all that kind of stuff, like, I can't fault her for having a simple form of love. Like, absolutely fine. Go do it. You know, awesome. Um, so yeah, I, I, I like her character and I like all the questions that she raises. Um, I I like her scenes, especially with the, that interplay with the prostitute. Cause that's the one time she really talks to somebody, not K and I get to see a different side of her. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And the prostitute, uh, Mariette, uh, she's played by Mackenzie Davis, which, the whole movie, I was like, man, she looks so familiar. Uh, do you watch Black Mirror? No. Oh, yeah, my no. gosh, you have to. I know I said about everything, but that is yeah. such a good show. She's in one of my favorite episodes. Um, it's called, I think it's called, like, San Juniper or San Junipero, something like that. But it's mm. one of the best episodes on that show. I won't say anything else because if you ever see it, you're, you don't want anything awesome. spoiled for you. But I recognized yeah. her from that, and she did a really good job in it. And she's been in a bunch of stuff. I I definitely recognize her not out of Black Mirror, but mm-hmm. um, oh gosh, oh Halt and Catch Fire. No, yes. I seen that. Oh, it's a it's a it's a nerd show. I mean, it's <laughs> well, uh, I'd probably watch it then. 
It's it's about a, it's about when uh, computers were first coming online, mm-hmm. um, and she is a programmer in there, and she was like the spunky uh, hacker chick that was making all the businessmen super rich. Oh, uh, gotcha. Um, but yeah, it's a she is well she is good in that show. There are parts of the show I don't like, but but she is very good in it. Definitely oh, awesome, awesome. Yeah. Um, okay, we'll pick pick another scene and we'll discuss. Is there another one you want to talk about? Um, let's see here. Um, I feel like I've kind of traversed a lot of scenes. <laughs> yeah, I know. Same here. That's why I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll put this on you. One last scene then. When uh, Kay and Deckert meet mm-hmm. and they have this pseudo-mentor-mentee, father-son, awkward chemistry, um, you can really tell that one, those two actors have good chemistry together. Mm-hmm. Uh just by the way they interplay with one another. But sure. um, I love the moment when uh, uh, Deckard pours out the, the whiskey on the floor and the dog comes trotting over. <laughs> I just, yes. I don't know. There's something about that that's so funny and like something my dad would do. Um, I was just like, oh man, that's such a father thing to do. Like pour out some beer and the dog comes over and licks it off the floor. And um, I don't know. It's just one of those things that was so... Uh, like uh, whimsical and human, and, and and very Harrison Ford to be like, yep, I'm a, I'm playing this. I'm a, I'm a human. Only humans would do this. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, I just like that whole scene where they're kind of getting to know each other, and there's that awkward tension between them because you don't quite know if Kay is his son or if he's gonna go that route or what, you know. And they have, I don't know. It's just, it's just good. Yeah, I think uh, I also like the line uh, where he says, "Is he real?" And then he goes, "I don't know. Ask him." <laughs> and I, I feel that <laughs> yeah, it's a good line. I and I feel that Kay or Ryan Gosling has been delivering lines like that a lot in the movie himself. Like, I think that's one similarity in between his delivery and Harrison Ford's is that he's he's the kind of guy he's not super chatty, right? Like I think yeah. that he sort of he takes things in and you can sometimes read the emotions on his face and then he'll say like one line. And when he is funny, it's usually in that way. And so mm-hmm. that's just another part for you to be like, well, are they related? Because even that seems kind of familiar, right? Like, I'm trying yeah. to think of some of Kay's one-liners, but he has a few of them. Um, oh, that's oh, fun. Oh, uh, the part where uh, when he's at the lab and that guy's complaining, you know, about the blackout, and he goes, my mom lost all my baby pictures. And he looks at him and he goes, oh, that's a shame. I bet you're a real cute baby, you know. <laughs> Good for you to be like, a baby. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of like the guy's like so odd looking, you know, like there's no way he was a cute baby. Yeah. It's just funny. Like he, he has little lines like that throughout the movie. And so that yeah. kind of ties back to Deckard. It sort of makes you think, well, th- here's more evidence that maybe Deckard was a replicant, I think, too, because their personalities are so similar. Um, oh, yeah, 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 but, definitely. But yeah, I, I really like that scene. I loved the... um the uh what do you call it? the uh hologram scenes too with uh the, the vegas stuff like oh uh, yeah those were really good i love the way that they use sound in that scene like the music would come on it would go off then you know it was like yeah that whole thing was really good and it kind of reminded me of and again this is one of my broken record things if you listen to enough of my episodes i feel like you groan when i say stuff like this but um 
it reminded me of, and I watched it like right after I saw Blade Runner 2049, but it reminded me of a short um, anime movie that was three different movies. It was called Memories. Have you ever oh, seen Oh, yeah. That? Oh, I love Memories. Okay, I have it on my, on my shelf behind so me. I'm so glad that you've seen that because you can't, it's so hard to buy. I actually couldn't find my copy and I rebought it on Amazon for like 30 bucks. It's like, I oh, think wow. it's out of print. But uh, it yeah. reminds me of the first short that Satoshi Kon had a really big hand in uh, called Med- Magnetic Rose. Oh, um, the, the, um, oh gosh, the, the it was opera the, singer. the opera singer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of a phantom of the opera slash, uh, you know, space junker situation. Yeah, yeah. 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 It was like sci-fi horror, you know, it was, but it was kind of like this where I don't know, like something about the way that they would appear and disappear mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how they were deceptive. I don't know. It was just, it reminded me of that a little bit. And I was like, man, if you like that scene, I feel like you would really like this. Short. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah, I I love memories, and you're right. I mean that that whole um, this technology is well past its due date. You know, yeah. it is junked, but it leads to this dramatic disorientation that punches up the scene and 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 throws in a wrench to their whole. Like you know that if they could just stop for a second and talk, it'd be fine. But they can't do that right away. They have to try and kill each other first. Mm-hmm. It's satisfying. Um, like it, you you believe because if he just waltzed in there and they started talking, it wouldn't be believable. Like you like right. you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love the way that this is random, not really a scene, but I love the way that the the blaster sounds. Um, it sounds so violent and extreme, like throughout the movie, every time it's fired, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You get a sense that somebody gets hit with that, they're losing an arm or something. Like a yeah. chunk of their body is going. Yeah. Definitely. And that's that's another like cyberpunk thing, honestly. Um, you know, uh, William Gibson and uh, Neil Stevenson, all those guys, whenever there's a handgun in a firefight, it is way more de- deadly than what we deal with. Um, yeah. And I like that they did something to make that make that believable in this by making them sound just so different and kind of violent mm-hmm. um, in a way that a, a gun that we would hear today. I mean, they're violent. uh, uh instruments but they the guns in this movie sounded uh another element above that yeah and maybe we're too used to how guns sound you know sure yeah Um, definitely yeah uh but i also liked his interaction with harrison ford i felt like harrison ford was in the movie just enough to me like i thought that they used him really well in this film i never thought like oh you know, they teased us in the trailer and we didn't really get to see him. I thought that they used him the perfect amount. He wasn't there the whole movie, mm-hmm. but he gave enough information and he was he participated in enough scenes to where like it felt like he was important to the film. And uh, I did like at the very end, you know, uh, Kay, even after discovering he's not the one, does everything in his power to get him back to his daughter. Yeah. And he, he asks him, you know, who are you? Like, why would you do this for me, basically? And, and what what's your stake in all this? And he just looks at him and doesn't say anything and says, go meet your daughter. It's obvious to the audience that he's vicariously living through the love that he and his daughter have for each other, you know, because that could have been him and he wishes it was. And this is like yeah. the closest he could possibly get. Yeah. And I thought yeah, that and, was so good. Yeah. And when he lays down in the snow mm-hmm. and he just lets the world be for a second, Cause he's done. Yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah. Um, it, it, that was one of the things that 
reminded me of like some of the hard boiled and some of those like really violent um, uh, John Woo detective movies uh-huh. is usually in the end there's this serene peaceful moment where the surviving main character gets to have a breath and you get the and then in that moment you realize oh man this person hasn't had a moment to themselves for the last two hours you know uh he doesn't have to have the burden of being the one that is always going to be on the run from you know both wallace and the police and everybody because everybody's going to want to get a piece of her right Um, and he doesn't have to be that person which is good for him that's true and i i also think that call back to Dave Bautista's line, you know, you're content with your life. You're killing other of your kind. You're not looking for more because you haven't seen a miracle and he saw it and he can't, he can't turn that off. He can't go back. And he, I think he saw in that moment how Dave Bautista's character, even though he didn't get to have a kid, even though he had such a bad life, just that possibility, that glimmer of hope is what, changed him and i think in that moment when he kind of hesitates right before he shoots him when they have their final standoff i felt like ryan gosling's character was a little jealous you know he was like what did he mean by that what was he trying to tell me what miracle could he possibly have seen in this life you know (laughs) and then at the end of the movie he realizes that and then uh what's the other line about um about doing things for love or it's the least selfish thing you can do or do you you know what I'm talking about there's there's a line dying for the right cause it's the most human thing we can do oh wow so in a way him dying for Deckard and for them to for him to see his daughter that he his whole arc was you know getting a taste of maybe I'm human or you know self-aware and then losing it but then in the end, he was like, dying for the right cause, it's the most human thing we can do. It's like he gets to have that. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, right. wow. Yeah, and he and, and in a way, he is dead, right? Because he can't be a cop anymore. His old life is gone. His old love is gone. He is uh, still walking, but who he was is, a, is gone. And he's so injured. I felt like they were implying a lot of the movie. He was bleeding so much. I thought he was dying. I thought he was literally dying on those steps at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair, fair. Um, Did not put that together, but you're absolutely right. It's uh, definitely, you know, definitely believable that he didn't didn't walk away from those steps. (laughs) Yeah, and I and I think it it speaks to what you're talking about about the like it it reminds you of other movies like that Um, because they do often end that way too, don't they? Where the lead character dies yeah it it seemed very like there's so many like (laughs) i know i keep saying this there's so many like anime movies like that where there's like a samurai (laughs) character and he's the main hero and at the end he like dies in the snow like that's like a scene right like oh yeah (laughs) that's a bunch of times that's definitely yeah at least yeah 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 Yeah, well i mean and they all you know feed each other at this point do yeah yeah Especially in the cyberpunk genre. I mean, you can't you can't have cyberpunk without Ghost in the Shell. You can't have Ghost in the Shell without Blade Runner. I mean, they they all talk to each other at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Oh, and uh, I think it was Double Indemnity ended that way too, where he's like oh. dying slowly. Um, anyway, uh, you, you know <laughs> you know what started that for me. The the earliest movie I can think of where that happens is Shane. 
Shane? I haven't seen that. Oh, it's a Western. We should talk about Shane at some okay. point. Sounds um, good. Very, very good. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely the uh, hero is basically d- doomed to die. <laughs> That's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I believe that. You know, I hadn't even put that together uh, until you said it, but that makes perfect sense that he's basically sitting there dying on those steps. Yeah, and it's it's the only way that he gets to obtain humanity, I think, because he, he, do- he isn't the one... He doesn't have a real connection. His memories weren't real, but he did some. He did something sacrificial, I guess. Is you know. Yeah, he's dying for a cause. Mm-hmm. You you said that there was a couple things that you noticed in the movie that you kind of wanted to talk about too. What what uh, did you notice? Um. Well, like mostly it was around the the love stuff. Um. Mm-hmm. You know that the whole perception and reality thing, the Philip K. Dick, Dick stuff. I think that we got into that pretty okay. well. Uh, um, but wasn't there something you said that you felt like maybe a bit clunky or maybe not really be clear enough or is sort of a plot hole? Something you had mentioned earlier, or maybe I misheard oh, that. No, no. Um, let's see here. Talking about, um, you know, there for there are a couple of things that I didn't understand in the movie. You know, there's so many parts about the movie that have clear to me anyways, clear symbolism or callbacks or meaning referencing other things. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't understand his journey through Vegas. Mm-hmm. That really was disjointing for me. Um, like the giant statues of naked women in basically debased poses, you know, yeah. waiting for... <laughs> giant statues of naked men to come visit them i don't know um and then the bees the field of bees he walks through like i feel like they were saying something there and i just didn't connect with it uh i i actually will agree with you (laughs) i did not know what the bees meant other than maybe telling us that life is returning there because it seemed like he thought that it was abandoned he couldn't live there and then the closer he got he's like oh the uh, radiation is gone now and it's mm, fine. Mm-hmm. And then he saw people right away. And then, you know, he almost gets killed, but then love saves him because she needs him to continue doing his job. But I don't know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that part is kind of weird. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. I so that was weird for you too. Okay, that. good. <laughs> no, that's in, good. like the director's commentary, we'll find out why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, I, I look forward to that because <laughs> I really, yeah. I really want to understand like, all right, why have giant statues of prostrating women? You know, know, like that maybe just. Maybe there's a theme about prostitutes in both the movies. That's true. Um, and, you know, that's always an ethical question, right? Like making a sex robot, is that okay? And right. then there's also a sort of a power dynamic between men and women. Like I think historically, this may be reaching, but historically, you know, women in that field uh, are really looked down on and mm-hmm. controlled and, tr- and mistreated and forgotten. Um, so I don't know, maybe that was sort of an analogy to the way that robots are treated. I, I don't know. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, I'll wait for the director's commentary. Because, <laughs> yep. yeah, that was one of the things I was like, what is going on here? Like, yeah. I'm with you. Excuse me. I'm with you, man, on all these other beats in the movie. But there's that one beat I was like, what in the heck am I looking at? Like, I don't understand this. So, uh, yeah, all right, good stuff. Yeah. Oh, the other thing was I've heard people say, like, 
that part of the movie where Harrison Ford says, well, I didn't, you know, I wasn't there uh, with the child and then they they didn't let me know where the child went. I think that happened differently than how people sometimes read it. I think that he was there for the birth and then she died. And mm. then he was like, well, now what do we do? And that's when they kind of decided, okay, you need to go away. Um, because some people have said, like, it doesn't make sense that if he wasn't there for the birth, how would he have, like, created that little wooden toy on the day the baby was born? I think he was there. I think things were going really well with Rachel. And then she got pregnant, and that was scary. And then she had a baby, and then it killed her. And now he's really realizing, like, uh, this is a huge problem. And so that's when he and the other replicants decided, okay, well, let's do this. I will separate myself from her. Don't show me where she goes. Yeah. What happens to her? Um, did, yeah. Well, did, did he know that it was a girl? I'm trying to remember if Decker knew that it was a girl. He never says, but that could also be because he knows not to say anything because any information that he lets yeah. will be used yeah. against him. So it's sort of up in the air, but if he was there for the birth, he would definitely know. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's kind of where I was going with that. Um, yeah, I feel like he was just because unless he was told when the baby was born, but why would they do that unless he was right. there? I don't know. No, because they couldn't reach out to him afterwards because right. of the way he ghosted. Um that his whole like admission to all the misdirection he did was the other big clue that Kay needed to put it all together. Um, and so I definitely want to rewatch and look at that. Cause I, 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 you know, I don't know that I have an opinion about whether or not he was there during the birth. I don't think that changes anything for me if he was, well, you know, if like he, if he wasn't, how would he have carved that little toy with the right. date of the birth? Yeah, that's the only thing that that I've heard. But to me, I never even it never even entered my mind that he wasn't there for the birth. To me, it, it felt like she had the baby, she died, and that's when things really fell apart and they were scrambling. Yeah, yeah, um, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now I think that he probably laid a lot of that groundwork even while she was pregnant because he was probably thinking, "Hey, we're gonna have to go on the run. There's no way." Yeah, well, it ends with them on the run, doesn't it? Like even just being with her at all. So yeah, like a pretty big issue since he was a Blade Runner and they knew mm-hmm. she wasn't human. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then yeah. on top of that, they have a baby. Right. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So all of the ideas he put forth to help them obscure her, because it sounded like he told everybody else how to hide the tracks. He didn't do that. Somebody else did. Oh, another problem some people have with the movie is if he does all this to protect her, why not kill himself? versus stay alive just in case and then gets tortured and tells everybody. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> my answer to that is is love. That despite what he was saying where, oh, to, to, to love someone you have to be a stranger, blah, 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 blah. I think that her, him having, if, if Rachel would have died, he would have been, and she had not had a baby, I think he'd be more likely to end it. But because of the child even knowing that risk i feel like he couldn't bring himself to because of the possibility of seeing that child again to me yeah yeah absolutely and like i mean death is such a zero-sum game right like he can no longer help her in any way if he dies true yeah you know and sure he could be uh captured but if he hides himself well enough he won't be captured yeah um and so and he almost did like he was almost well enough hidden that he wasn't ever found 
is just because of the radiology on that horse gave him gave away the location not even like just the city not even like where he was just the city you know and he would see somebody coming a mile away so i i don't know i i think that i think that ford's character was smart enough to say i can go into hiding i don't need to pre proactively kill myself just to i don't know i think that'd be weird if somebody killed themselves after deciding to go into hiding like that's a that's an extreme step. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. I just wondered what you thought about that. Um, yeah. Oh, and I had one more thought. I'm trying to think now. Oh, I'm going to lose it again. Um, oh, oh, what was it? Uh, okay, we talked about that. Uh, I think it was something to do with the other replicants. Um, oh, I lost it. I don't know. Maybe it'll come back. Um, the, the resistance of replicants? The, yeah. The army? Mm-hmm. I did get the feeling that uh, Harrison Ford was not interested in that at all. <laughs> and yeah. He was only interested in protecting her, sort of not using the other replicants, but letting them believe that so that, you know, they would help him. Oh, it came back to me. Uh, his daughter, do you think that she implanted that memory? She says the best memories are real ones, but why risk that? Why risk sharing a memory that will definitely tire back to her dad? Is that intentional? Or is she mm. just so lonely in that bubble that she couldn't help it? I wondered what her why she did that. Oh man, that's a great question because we don't know much about her other than her isolation. I also like how they misdirect you with her accent because Rachel and Decker don't have an accent, but Frieza mm-hmm. does, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. seems like she raised her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, that's yeah, question. that's a that's a good one. Um, you know, I do. I like the idea that she is so lonely that she implants her own memories into replicants so that she has some kind of connection to them. Mm-hmm. And, and that mean, she, yeah. And, and she was very sympathetic. Remember she said, your life is so hard. This is the least I can do. Well, yeah. why would she say that? Because her mother is a replicant. Right. Yeah. And she, and she would have been with replicants for some time and yeah. she would have known how, how hard their lives are. She would have watched a Nexus seven die. You know, uh, because not all of them were freed from that, I don't think, at the time. Um, so, I mean, she would have seen the, that hardship for sure. There's a skip in number two with the Nexus. Um, it's like one of the numbers is skipped. I don't know which one it is. It's like it goes from like, I think, seven, oh, it, eight, and then ten. Or or one of those numbers is skipped. Do you remember or, which one? Or maybe it's a six. She would have seen a six die. So I think it was oh, six yeah, to six eight. to eight. So who is seven? Is seven Deckard and Rachel? You know what I, I think, mean? Yeah, I think seven is Rachel at least. At least Rachel. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it makes sense that there would have only been one or two of them and that they would have, you know, all records of them would have been lost because um, they would have been the most closely guarded secret. And right. when you lose everything, that is going to go away too. That's um, true. So yeah. Um, okay. Do you mind if we if we wrap up a little bit? Yeah, I, totally. I go to <laughs> yeah, me, me too. Me too. It's eleven. <laughs> yeah. So so, what would you say? I guess we've already answered this question. Usually by this point, we've answered this. But what keeps you coming back to this movie? What? Why do you keep wanting to see it again? So, I. What brings me back to this movie is the um, 
the way it tells the story is definitely worth a, re- a rewatch. Like there's so much going on that I know I've missed things and I want to see those things. And then I want to sh- like, I don't know. I, I just want to understand more of what they're trying to say in this movie. Cause I think that it's rare to have movies these days that have a lot of layered, um, uh, points and, and positions. And so I, whenever I find one, I, I got to sink my teeth into it. And yeah. this one definitely has that. I agree. I've heard people say that some of uh, Denny's work is a little overrated, that he has, you know, fans that will insist he's perfect, but he's not. And that this movie is kind of too long. It could have been told in two hours. My opinion is, you know, people kind of describe this film and films like this as a slow burn. Um, I think that that's good. I actually Mm -hmm. think that movies are a little too fast. Nowadays, I feel that we've become so impatient that we want everything immediately. And when things don't make sense right away, or if we have to revisit them to catch them, we're tempted to call it too slow. Oh, it had pacing issues. You always hear that. Mm -hmm. And that is like my least favorite critique, because I've noticed that people say that about movies that I think the director intentionally changed the pace. I think that like Kubrick, Denis lets you sit and digest a scene and sometimes you need to do that you know i think that uh you know a lot of people his favorite movie 2001 space odyssey there's tons of people that hate that movie and they say it's so slow it's so boring what am i looking at but it really helped capture not just a plot not just a story but a feeling like a real experience Mm -hmm. and i think any movie that's able to do that usually is a little slower because they have to let you, the audience, react and be kind of like a part of it. And any movie that gives me that, I'm more interested in. Almost all the movies that I like, people have called slow. <laughs> uh, and that's, you know, consistent. Um, and also, I, I really enjoy researching. Um, I really enjoy gathering detail about a movie. I want to be able to go back and get more out of it. If you could do that with every movie ever, I'd be happy. Um, I understand why other moviegoers don't want to do that. Like, I completely understand, you know, my dad's the kind of person that goes, I just want to be entertained. Right. There is nothing wrong with that. I want to stress that I am not trying to be a snob here and say, if you didn't enjoy this movie, you're like a bad person or you're dumb or whatever. This is a specific type of movie that I think certain film lovers like. I mean, it's divisive even within the film community. There are some film people that really do not like Blade Runner. And they have all the critiques I just said. Pacing problems. Too slow. You know, boring. Um, So it's not for everybody. But if you're the kind of audience that this is seeking, this, this movie's like near perfect. I read a quote from a... Kumail Nanjiani, uh, the guy that created The Big Sick, he's in Silicon Valley, uh, oh, he's yeah. in Portlandia a lot. He said, yeah. watching this movie, I realized watching it that I was watching one of my favorite movies ever for the first time. And that was an incredible feeling. And wow. I thought, yeah, you know, I saw his quote before I saw the movie and I thought, man, that is really hyping this movie up. Yeah. But hopefully I feel that way. And I did. And I think it was perfectly aimed at the kind of person that wants that, that wants those things out of this movie. Um, A lot of the movies I like are very visual, but also psychological and dark. So 
I mean, this has that. Um, what would you say to someone, like, how do you pitch this movie to somebody? Maybe we already did that <laughs> for sure. two hours, but how would you sure. pitch it? Yeah, so uh, what I would say to somebody is, um, you know, Blade Runner 2049 is like a detective movie that asks a lot of questions about what is, you know, what is it to be human all whilst trying to uncover a great mystery. Uh, It's, it's a really fun movie and it's got a lot of interesting concepts that it raises. Um, But really like Harrison Ford does an awesome job. Gosling does an awesome job. Like the, the, it's just a, I don't know. It's just the world is so rich and so cool that you kind of have to see it. Even if it's not going to be your favorite movie, you kind of have to see this because this is definitely going to inform movies to come. Like yeah. movies after this after this one are going to reference this. There's no way they don't because there's a lot going on in here it, and it's just a, a really well-packed movie that's I think is a lot of fun. Can be a little long to watch, you know, it's a longer movie. It is. But <laughs> yeah. there's some really great scenes in here. The action is crisp and fun. You know, the just I loved the story and the investigation and all of that stuff. So, yeah, um, definitely high praise. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, anyone that had a problem with the slowness of the first one, I think this movie is even longer, but it feels like it moves a lot quicker. I think, like you said, it, it definitely will set the tone for movies like this going forward. Um, and it's probably my favorite of Denise's movies so far, to be honest. I think it would be hard to top this for me. Um, wow, so yeah. that's awesome. <laughs> uh, I did a podcast yeah. with the guys at, it's called Geek Media Core, and one of the top things that they wanted out of this movie was to know if he was a replicant or not. And they don't answer that question, ha ha ha, which yeah, is well, really frustrating to them. And I thought, yeah, you know, that's yeah, I mean, how in the world are they going to do that? If if they if they came down one way or the other, Ridley Scott wouldn't have done it, or Harrison Ford wouldn't have done it. Right. Well, on that note, uh, <laughs> thank you so much for coming back, David. I can't express to you. This is definitely one of those. People always ask me, well, what movies do you wish you were talking about? You know, And we haven't right. talked about a movie that I was like, oh, I do not want to talk about this or anything, <laughs> thankfully. But, um, yeah. but this is definitely a movie the second I saw, I had so many opinions on. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I said, I could go on and on. I want to debate and argue with someone literally about what the movie's about. Like, I like to do that because yeah. it's safe. You know, it's just a movie. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's, it's not politics. It's, it's right. movies, whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a dream one for me. I was really excited to talk about it. So again, thank you for selecting that one. Yeah, likewise. I'm so glad you uh, invited me to come and talk about this. Uh, the whole genre is one of my favorites. And then the fact that this just came out and it was so good. I, I know we had talked about some other movies, but once I saw it, I was like, no, no, no. I have got to talk about this. If you'll let me, I've got to talk about this one. So I'm really glad and and uh, thankful that you uh, invited me to do so. Okay. Well, I also want you to send me some of those suggestions <laughs> about yes. some movies I told you I was weak on. Um, yeah. And then, of course, want to have you back. Uh, so, you know, work on selecting that next movie so that we can talk about that one as well. Definitely. Yeah, we'll do. All right. Appreciate it, David. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Bye. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening. I know this was a long one, but the movie was just too good not to dive into. 
Uh, I really appreciated having David back for this one. I think it was a really fun episode. Uh, if you guys have any feedback on this episode or any others, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter under AYA Lisa Cosplay, or you can reach me on Instagram under AYA and as a Nancy AMI Lisa, or in our closed Facebook group, I Love That Movie. Our group is closed, but if you send me a request, I'll add you. It's a safe space for movie lovers to discuss their favorite films judgment-free. My only rule is keep it positive. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate the show. And if you leave a positive review on iTunes, you'll be entered to win a $20 gift card to movie theater chain of your choice. Right now, we're at 13 reviews, and I will draw once we get to 15. Everybody loves free money, and it's my way of giving back to you guys for supporting me. Thanks so much again, and I look forward to hearing from you. 